Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Talking Comics Podcast. It's Wednesday, May 10th, and you're listening to episode number 597. I'm your host, Steve Say, and joining me for this week's show are Mr. Bob Ryer. So what are we doing for 600? Uh, we could talk about that off air. Okay. I've got some ideas. <laughs> uh, Aaron Amos is here. Yes, yes, he is. Indeed. <laughs> and returning the prodigal son, yep. Joey Pacino. That's right. That's right. Couldn't keep me away for that long. We're on the restraining same... order lifted. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the same episode. This is wild. I've missed you, friend. All these beards on this podcast. This is my first Zoom podcast, and here it is, just beard, beard, beard. Speaking of gorgeous beards, we have a very special guest for at least part of this week's episode. Mr. Jeremy Whitley is in the house. What is up, y'all? What's up? It's been a minute. Yeah. Whitley. Whitley. (laughs) When's the last time we did that? Uh, So what do we got for you this week? We're actually going to mix things up a little bit. Uh, We're going to interview Jeremy about his new uh, book with Brie Indigo, The Dog Knight. Uh, Is it... By the time this comes out on Wednesday, Jeremy, is it out or coming out the following week? Uh, it will be out the following week. It'll be on the 16th, the so next Tuesday. Nice. Excellent. All right. So we're going to hang out with Jeremy for a little bit, ask him some questions, talk about some dogs. And then um, I, some of us will have lightning round material. Others, maybe not. <laughs> uh, it's been a weird week. And then we are going to get to our other main event, which is our review for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Came out in theaters this past weekend. Uh, Spoilers, I loved it. So we'll talk more (laughs) about that later. But for right now, I think we should just get into it with Jeremy. What do you say? Let's do it. Yeah, mix it up. All right. So, Jeremy... We have you here for the dog night. Obviously, uh, you wrote the book. You worked uh, with Pre Indigo on art and colors by Melissa. How do you pronounce the last name? Uh, oh, Capriglioni. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I was, I was like, wait, I've got so many colors. Which one? Oh, I, night, I, was, right. I was I was cruising. I was doing really well, and I didn't read it ahead of time. And then I hit it, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> Like Jeremy will know. All right. What's the uh give me the origin story for the dog knight? Like when did you first think of the plot and characters? Where did this come from? Uh this one 
you know, so many of, of the stories that I I write start out with like character. And this, I think, is the rare occasion where it was like idea for story first and then like character later, because it was um, it was like, all right, I had this idea of, um, you know, a, a knight that is is in service to, you know, dogs. Basically, they are the bridge between, you know, mankind humankind and uh, dog kind so like they are i think how i was originally pitching it to my my agent is like yes man is dog's best friend the dog knight is dog's best friend um and yeah basically like i just had very loose like yeah there's this group of super dogs called the pathion who you know each each one represents one of the like primary traits that dogs uh really care about that they hold sacred and in order to become the dog knight, you have to uh, pass a test for all of these different traits. Um, so, you know, that's that's sort of like the initial pitch started out that way. And uh, I think I, I pitched that to Mo, my agent, and she was like, yeah, I think I know exactly who will like want to write this, who will want to like publish this book, which, which usually that's like 10 steps down the line. <laughs> like I've yeah. written half the book before we find anybody that's interested in it. Was there a like specific event that inspired the story or like, what was the seed of it? Why, why dogs, why the dog night? Um, I think part of it was my, uh, my daughter is having an obsession with dogs, uh, wanting to get a dog. And in, in our case, like I am mildly allergic to dogs. So for a long time, I was like, Oh no, we're not, we're not going to get a dog. We're not going to get a dog. And then they sort of wore me down and, um, <laughs> You know, we uh, we went out to this you know rescue and ended up getting uh, my dog Ace. Um, and I think like just like hanging around with dogs and uh, having having Ace around, I was like, you know, I I love I love dogs. <laughs> I want to do something <laughs> with dogs. I want to like, you know, I think a lot of times the comics with dogs in them are a little emotionally manipulative, but also they always get me. Like, we three every time. Gets me right in the heart. Um, but, yeah, like, that's... I wanted to do something fun and light, and something that was, like, you know, aimed for middle grades and had a chance to, like, have this, like, story where there's a character who's trying to figure their own stuff out and trying to figure out who they are. And then you have, you know, this, this group of dogs who are, you know, dogs are always accepting. Dogs will, you know, take you for, for whoever you are. They're not going to like question it and give you a hard time about stuff. So, you know, that's uh, sort of how we arrived at Frankie, our main character, being the the lead in this story was, you know, that they're a person who is dealing with some of that stuff themselves. And, you know, these these dogs immediately like love Frankie um, and, you know, make make them their champion eventually, um, you know, put them put them through these trials to become the dog knight. Um you know, even as some stuff in, in Frankie's life is a little bit uh, less solid on their part. Can you uh, go into that a little bit more for our listeners? Tell them a little bit more about who Frankie is. Yeah. Uh, so Frankie is a non-binary middle schooler. Um, I wanted to make sure that this is not like a coming out story. It's not a story of, you know, somebody's just trying to figure this out. But like Frankie is, is pretty well adjusted has figured out where they're at but is still trying to figure out where that person that they are fits into um all of the rest of this 
um, you know, they have some some issues with some people who have been their friends in the past and uh, are a little less friendly now. Um, and, you know, trying to just figure out where this this new and, and awesome person that they are actually fits in with the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, what their what their style is, what they want to be like going forward. Um, and so, yeah, this is a story of them sort of trying to figure that out while also going through these you know, trials to be basically a, a superhero for dogs. So when you were writing this, uh, how did you connect the dots between there's there's these trials of the Pothion, basically missions of of worth to see if you really are the uh, the dog knight. And they're, I hope I'm using this word correctly, they're kind of like intrinsically linked to Frankie's journey toward becoming more comfortable with their identity. Mm -hmm. Did you like, what was the creative process for like, did you have fun connecting those things? Did you have um, like charts of how to do all of that sort of thing, like different themes? I feel like there were, there were some of them that I had very set out from the beginning. Like I knew like, you know, loyalty was one we were going to jump into right away. And I had sort of a, a feeling of where we were going to go with that um, from the beginning. And some of it was sort of finding it along the way. Um, I think like one of the last trials we go through is the the trial of smell. And like, as I was writing the book, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to handle this because like, it's not, you know, for us, it's not the same sort of value as honesty or loyalty or anything like that. For dogs though, you know, being able to, to smell is very important. Um, but we, we humans, we do have kind of the, in quotes, the smell test, right? Where things just don't yeah. feel right. And that's what you went for. And that was, that was lovely. Absolutely lovely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, I think it, it came together nicely because, you know, it started off the story as sort of like describing the feeling of not, of, of, you know, just having that feeling in your stomach that things aren't quite right of, you know, that literal mm -hmm. gut feeling. Yep. And, oh uh, boy, and I got and a story as, for you. And, yeah, and as we were getting into it, I was like, you know what? That I feel like that relates strongly to this this smell idea in, in an interesting way, and then ended up sort of slowly steering it that direction. I think I had a trial of smell yesterday because if I can derail us for just a second, Bronwyn was supposed to leave for Chicago yesterday on a business trip, and. When I dropped her off at the airport, I had a feeling in the pit of my stomach, like we were just talking about, that I was going to see her later that day. Something was going to keep her from going on this trip. Lo and behold, before she got on the plane, thank goodness, her plane was actually struck by lightning and took the plane out of commission. So she then had to wait several hours to catch a different flight into Toronto and then customs was closed by the time she landed to get her connecting flight. And she wasn't able to make it to the States. And I had to go to Toronto to pick her up and come home. But going back to what we were talking about, I felt it in my stomach early that morning, this unexplained little weird nagging, like almost like a voice in my head being like, I hope you're going to be awake tonight, man, because you're going to end up having to drive to Toronto. I just have a feeling. <laughs> so anyway, getting back on yeah. track. Sorry about that. Uh, I know that you and Bree are friends and colleagues, but how did they become an artist on this project? Did you bring it to them or? Well, it was 
it was really interesting actually because um we sort of i because it got picked up sort of so early in the process um we didn't really have a neighbor on it right away um or yeah we didn't have an artist on it right away and uh you know i, I talked to uh the press about it and you know they they wanted to make sure that like they had some say in in you know what the style of the art was what things looked like um i was like you know that's that's great if you guys want to um you know narrow down some artists you uh you like what i what's really important to me is that we have a non-binary artist on this so that there's somebody who can like who i don't have to explain like the intricacies of the character to that they can bring some of their own experience to that to you know what they look like how they dress what they're dealing with rather than me then having to explain it you know second or third hand to a an artist um and so they uh they said yeah that's great we we agree we'd love to do that so they went and you know dug up uh, a bunch of non-binary artists and brought me i think about six and uh Bree's art was immediately like that's that's the, that's the one that's what it needs to look like that's perfect and luckily they were available so uh yeah they um jumped on and yeah they they've been really great and you know like you said we we didn't actually know each other before this uh, book started, but oh, like, seriously? We're, yeah, we're good friends now. They they've been on Progressively Horrified several times. Like we, yeah. you know, chat on Twitter all the time. So I love their episodes; they're so good. Yeah, Bree is great. I love them. That's awesome. Uh, listen, if anybody else wants to jump in at any time, feel free. I'm just running through these now. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about character specifics there's a character introduced in the story dallas who is uh frankie's kind of frenemy into into a friend a rekindling of a relationship uh how did frankie's friend dallas evolve as a character in the story was she always meant to be a frenemy returned from the outskirts or how did that evolve um a little bit i think you know, when I first wrote Dallas and do a scene, you know, I needed to have somebody who was a, a bit of an antagonist who, you know, would uh, give Frankie a hard time about something, um, you know, who would have issues with the uh, uh, sort of, uh, of of Frankie's gender and um, at the same time wouldn't be too, like, I didn't want it to be too scary, like, you know, physically threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I put this this character who, you know, had been their friend, um, who they, you know, had a falling out when Frankie had come out. Um, and I think like what I wanted to do was sort of give this example of a, a character who um could change and could redeem themselves. And um, you know, we could see this this kid who's you know had this influence from her parents who are not particularly great people and not very understanding. Um you know, who could come to sort of this realization on their own that like the way that they were treating their friend was not okay. And, uh, you know, they could make an effort to do better um, because I think that's an important thing to show and model. Cause I think there is a certain amount of like people do a bad thing and, you know, they get cut off and we never talk about them again and they never, um, you know, they're never okay again. I think it's important to have like, an example of, of somebody doing better. And even in Frankie's case, I think it's better to have, it's good to have an example of Frankie not feeling like they have to be like, okay, yeah, everything you did before is fine. I forgive yeah. you for all of it. We're cool. 
but yeah. uh, can we have a hug no we can't yeah, yeah that was yet. actually yeah. i was going to bring that up that was one of my favorite parts of the book was seeing frankie establish a boundary and saying like you know we're on our way but we're not there yeah, yet absolutely and being being able to make that distinction and and make that choice for themselves i thought that was really cool and i thought it was cool that dallas respected that choice you know she was already there trying to make an effort that that arc with with dallas and frankie is one of my favorite favorite aspects of the book uh in addition to all the dog stuff which we'll get to in just a minute yeah because we, we even get a little later on where they have a conversation after other things have happened. I don't want to spoil too much where it's, can I be your sidekick? And things mm -hmm. are going in a different place. And that, it is an amazing arc, Jim. It's one of the favorite things I've read that you've done. Really, 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 truly. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really like, I think it's important to like be able to draw that boundary and to have that distinction and, and be able to tell those sort of like, stories of like, yeah, people can come back from doing bad things and you can forgive them, but you don't have to. And it, it doesn't have to be everything all at once. You right. can forgive, you know, but not forget necessarily. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I think that's a, it's a distinction that's difficult to get when you're in it. And it's, it's not always something that like, especially, you know, younger people have a model for, right? Like, you know, they're always sort of told to just, yeah, you have to, you, the person says you're sorry and then they're sorry and you don't fight anymore about it <laughs> that's not always the way it goes yeah exactly indeed all right i promise we talk about dogs we're going to talk about dogs how did you choose the dogs to be in the pantheon um i think it's a it's a combination of like i knew what the i knew what the you know uh what they were going to represent. You know, I knew the different values um, and I knew that they needed to be like visually distinct enough that we could, you know, put all the dogs in a panel that could be in the background while something else is going on and you wouldn't mix up which one is which. Um, but also that uh, they needed to all, all or almost all have great pun names. Um, Cause you know, puns, puns are important. Um, I've written enough. Written enough, Kieran Gillen to know puns are important. Um, <laughs> so, like, there's a couple of them that just, you know, originated from like, you know, just puns that I had in mind already. Um, you know, and most of them are just like, I think the the one that came out the most like fully formed from the beginning uh, is the Yorkshire Terror. Um, yes, he's my favorite. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm yeah. with you, Steve. Yeah, which I was like, of course if you had you know if a if a yorkie had superpowers they would immediately just become batman like that's <laughs> that's the personality that would yeah. bring to the whole situation yeah. that's justice <laughs> now i i do have a question from our co-host jess she wants to know why no docs huns just saying <laughs> uh, let me Glad to know that uh, Dotsons do feature actually like the opening of the second book. So, oh, um, cool. There's a I'll lot of like, yeah, a lot of, of dogs that show up throughout. Um, just only a certain number we could fit into the uh, into gotcha. the Pantheon. And once we had a a relatively long beagle, you know, having a Dotson on top. Yeah, there you go. Seems... That's for yeah, repetitive. <laughs> but second second volume, I'll let her know. <laughs> 
You have a, a personal favorite uh, dog in the bunch. Uh, that's tough. Um, I I really do like Terra. Terra is probably my favorite to write. Um, but um, Platinum, the Platinum Retriever, is probably like my my emotional favorite. He's the the one that's you know he's got my heart. And how do you pronounce dog? The the bulldog. Dog. 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 Yeah, you have to say it with a bit of a a, a, bro, a Scottish brog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do a Sean Connery, and you'll have it. There you go, dog. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I don't know. My my voice is a little shot today, but you know, I do my best. Yeah, so he's a nice English bulldog. He's uh, incredibly stubborn to the point that, like, you literally can't move him if he doesn't want to be moved. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like we've all encountered one of those dogs at some point. All right, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna address the elephant in the room, the dog in the room, the dog in the room. I think I might be the biggest cat person out of this group. <laughs> if anybody wants to stop me, go ahead. No, nope, but you uh, are. no, go as a, as as the cat man. Uh, cats make a brief appearance in this story as kind of these like instigators or antagonists. Uh, are you not a cat person? Uh, I, <clears throat> I am not a cat person, Uh-oh. um, but specifically, like I grew up around cats. My mom has always had cats. I am much more allergic to cats than I am to dogs. So like, oh, even no. when I go to my parents' house now, it's like, I gotta, gotta get on that allergy medicine first. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think cats definitely have a much different value system than dogs, which doesn't always, uh, lend itself to heroics, let's say. No, but there's uh, this is not the appearance that they make in this is not the last appearance the cats will make in our our trilogy of of books that we've already. Yeah. Got oh, it's a trilogy together. Yeah, uh, Bree is already most of the way through drawing the second one. Damn. And, uh, you know, we've got a, a third one coming after that as well, which I've I've already written. The script is already finalized and everything, but. Yeah, we get to see a little bit more about uh, cats and, you know, maybe sort of what the cat equivalent of the Pathion is. Nice. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I will say one of the things I think is they say it's one of the, the nicest compliments you can give someone about uh, a piece of their work. Well, when I got to the end, I immediately wanted more. And that was when I picked up my phone and I messaged you and I was like, what? <laughs> that's it like it ends there come on man and then you told me there was going to be more and i was really happy yeah i you know i really enjoyed writing this one like frankie's a fun character and then the the dogs are so much fun to play with um and yeah it was one of those that like we were debating back and forth about the ending about how to end this one my editor and i were going back and forth and it's like well you know we want to make sure it's a solid enough ending that like once you read it you don't feel like you didn't get a whole story, but you know, we, we do want it to be the sort that like, after you're done, you're like, all right, I'm ready for the next one. <laughs> you know, yeah. let me, let me find out what's next. Um, we, we had a lot of debate about uh, whether it should be, uh, whether it ha- should have a new hope ending or an empire strikes back ending. My, <laughs> my, my tendency as somebody that writes single issue comics is always like, and really put that hook in there at the end. And she's like, no, it's a full book. You want it to like have an ending, but then like, you know, 
you know, make maybe people still want more, but not feel like they didn't get a whole story. Right, right. I think you nailed it. I think you really nailed it. Well, thanks. All right. One of my, I'm going to go through one of my favorite lines in the book. I'm going to bring, <laughs> bring the lights down for just a second, get a little serious uh-huh. on you. So you have this line in the book that I really enjoyed. Uh, it's funny how the rest of your life being chaos makes you appreciate the safe, quiet spaces you have. I, this line has been in my head for the past three days and I think it might be responsible for why I choked up so many times watching Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I was a wreck watching that movie, and I had bits and pieces of this book in my head as I was watching it. Anyway, if you don't mind sharing, this might get a little personal, do you have a safe and quiet space to retreat to when things get too intense? And if so, what is it? Um, Mine changes quite a bit like I, I you know I have my office here where I'm at right now which is uh technically the garage but like is shut <laughs> off enough from everything else that like there's not a lot of sound bleed I can kind of come in here and put on my headphones and do my own thing but I think especially like during the pandemic that was a big thing for me because like everybody was here all the time and this is you know my house is my office as a writer so like having a whole bunch of office mates all the time um, who don't really respect any of that stuff. It was, uh, <laughs> it was a little annoying. Um, so it was, I found it like really valuable anytime I could get away somewhere and, you know, uh, spend some time. There is, uh, this is going to sound awfully uh, gothic of me, but uh, <laughs> around the corner from my neighborhood, there is a graveyard um, that has a big, like sort of path that people use for walking around the outside of it but it's like a very quiet and still place that has like some wind chimes hung up in there and it's just got a nice like atmosphere to it and uh my wife was very like you just just went and hung out in the graveyard for a while i was like yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, i know how that sounds like it sounds like i've got a real mary shelley thing going on that's not what's (laughs) not what's happening here I can definitely relate to that a little bit. When my dad lived in Port Jeff uh, on Long Island, he had a graveyard behind his house. And that was often a place to just kind of walk around and go and hang out. And there were lots of stories of that area that were fun to kind of have those in your head as you were walking around hearing sounds and stuff. Um, Steve, I'm going to jump in for a second because yeah. there's another there's another line that got to me in the same sort of way that you're talking about, and I'll, I'll, I'll frame it this way, Jeremy. I mean, wouldn't it be great if everyone will be able to say to themselves and the world around them, "It's very me," and have everybody else be happy with it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean. I think as somebody who is habitually on Twitter, uh, yeah, it'd be nice to be able to be like, hey, this is uh, this is what I like. This is what I'm into. This is who yeah, I am. Yeah. And uh, have people just, just be cool about it, you know? <laughs> but but, but again, within the story, we have people who then, like as Dallas does, come to terms with things. And maybe if we all, oh, this is awful to say it. Oh, I'll go for it. I say lots of awful things on this show. If everyone grew up a little bit, and just gave everyone their own space. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I think like one of the things that was important to me in, in this, like that sort of seeped into my brain 
over the course of, I think, several years of, of my wife teaching. And I, I don't know, uh, this may be, you know, some of Joey's experience with teaching as well is like, there, people are always worried about, you know, what the like, poor kids are getting into and what they are doing. And like, you know, there was always somebody worried about me in school and like my parents were sick and everything and or when my you know dad got cancer when I was younger but like my my wife teaches or used to teach a lot of like upper class kids that are like pretty well off but whose parents are just like not there they're just not not looking for them they're the only thing they're ever there for is to like tell everybody that they're not doing anything wrong is to show up at the school and yell at teachers and stuff like that rather than to be like rather than to show up like when their kid actually needs them to be there um yeah and they just like you know they're always sort of pushing their values and the things they feel about themselves and and that stuff on their kids um which is is very much like what's what's happened to dallas in this story is like she has had this you know the insecurities of her parents who she is desperate to love her and to please because they're almost never around and they don't give love Mm -hmm. um and you know she is sort of like defaulted to doing what they say because it's what they say and like she doesn't i don't know if she doesn't know any better but like you know she feels like that's what she has to do um and you know a lot of a lot of kids who really do get in like real trouble in school um not like not necessarily trouble with the school, but like real life trouble while they're in, you know, middle school and high school. Like it's because, you know, they don't have parents that are there looking for them or their parents are too busy trying to push one thing or another on them to actually listen and care about what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. Or excuse As me, what, you are awakening, yeah. you are awakening some traumas for me, sir, right now. <laughs> now um, yeah, I was going to say was one thing that something that the book just captures so well when they rolled up to Dallas's house and it was that giant mansion with the wall around it. I was like, Oh yeah, this makes sense. I know these kids, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And she's like, she and her, her jerkwad brother are in that house doing whatever they want. And, you know, the parents are just there to kind of excuse. There's a great moment where Frankie says to, laredo el dorado austin whatever um <laughs> lubbock <laughs> uh lubbock you know uh says like no one's ever going to tell you you're wrong or whatever the line is like no one's like no one's ever going to punish you or like say that you're being a jerk so i'm just going to do it right now to you um and yeah there's that kind of like there's that kind of like permissiveness that that those two characters really uh embodied that i thought the book handled really well but i i think the book also and and your work i think does this often so i'm not surprised by it at all just really handles just handles these kids well like as someone who's around this age group all the time when frankie is at the beginning of the book with their mom at the the dressing room scenes in the beginning oh um you and 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 uh, Bree is the artist. Is that mm-hmm. yeah? I felt that discomfort in the skin, like just like 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 when you're 12, 13, 14 years old. I see it every day. Like these kids are just like trying to figure themselves out, and 
you don't handle it with like disdain or irony. It's, it's, it's so sincere. And I, I just like all of your work really encompasses it. But here in particular, I thought that you just handled these characters with such care. Um, even the characters that you kind of wanted to punch in the face a little bit until they came around at the end. But yeah, I just, I thought it was really, really good in that sense. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I distinctly, I remember middle school very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't remember it very good, but I do remember it very well. Um, and just like that sort of, you know, it, it's a different type of not belonging and, and discomfort in, you know, my body than obviously what Frankie is feeling. But like, I just like, remember that feeling of just like nothing being quite right everything being off but not knowing what the hell to do about it like yeah. you know and that's it's desperate in you know middle school especially like high school by that time you have some things you can do some you know you might have a part-time job you might have a car you might have some way to like get away from some of the stuff forever drama club you know yeah. <laughs> yeah but like middle school especially like you know, here in the, you know, where I, where I grew up in the semi-rural South, it's like, there's just not anything to do, but go yeah. get in fights or like, you know, in, in my case, join the football team and be miserable playing football with a bunch of like dudes that suck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then Dallas actually has, uh, I don't know if I say it's an epiphany, but when she has her blow dryer accident, which I'm sure the gremlins were part of, and her mom basically abandons her to go to school with half her the front of her head burned off and that sort of it plants a seed for the conversation that she'll have with frankie yeah it, you know things are not the way she thought maybe when frankie then makes their argument about such things it, it then takes hold a little bit yeah and i i don't know how much it rings to other people but like that line and that's in that scene where like she goes to her mom about this and her mom is like you're just doing that for attention is yeah, such a yeah. like oh god i hate it so much like, <laughs> it's, i know parents that say that kind of things and it's like mm -hmm. god forbid your kid would want your attention, attention. like exactly so terrible <laughs> so it, Jared, it's just, i'll go ahead go, go go no go steve go well i'm, I'm gonna move into another question so go ahead and say what you're gonna say Oh, no, 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 you're, you're fine. Yeah, well, I'm okay. just going to amplify. You're, you're good. Um, is there an aspect of the book? I'd like to think that whenever you start a new project or whenever you walk away from a new project, even though you're still in the midst of this one, is there an aspect of the story or the character that you're particularly proud of that you feel is kind of new for you as a, as a creator and as a writer? Like, have you leveled up in any way to you? do you think through this story um it's it's kind of it's hard to nail down sometimes but um i do feel like i feel like they're the character of frankie i feel like is, is in line with a lot of the like other characters and, and stories i've told and you know they obviously add some aspects that that i haven't dealt with before with them being non-binary and everything but like they're very much pitched like a lot of um my protagonists are but i feel like the the characters of um both dallas and uh we haven't really talked about frankie's mom diane um are both love characters her. that i i really came to love in writing the story um and that you know like 
uh, Dallas goes through this like figuring stuff out and you know comes out the other end a better person but starts starts the story like a bad person <laughs> like they're not they're not good they're not doing it right um you know and then you would rightly not like them at the beginning of the story um but then like diane i think is this example of like the kind of the kind of parent i want to be that like um she's she's a lawyer professionally but she also sort of takes that lawyer attitude forward you know for her kid that she is she is a zealous advocate for her kid um you know that you know she is willing to listen to what Frankie is going to going through and like go along with uh you know them figuring out who they are and even if you know she does clearly have some like hesitation and some preference in there um because I think it's impossible for parents not to like I think it's it's one of the things that's hard I think to get across and like coming out stories and stories like that is that like you you do need to like hear what your kids are saying and let your kids sort of lead their own story but like part of like when you're a parent to somebody for you know five ten twenty years like you have like it's impossible not to have moments where you're like oh they're doing so great they're gonna be this they're gonna do this they're gonna go out and and do this thing or you know a point where you see them and you think oh i, I can see what they're gonna look like in the future um i can see who they're gonna be and then like when you're when your kid throws you a curveball and <laughs> goes a different mm -hmm. way it's it's difficult to like let that sort of old expectation of, of who they are die and to you know continue being a good parent to the kid that you have um and i think that's like that's a really important aspect of diane in this story for me Jeremy, I'm going to jump in with something. I, I had a friend who's a very great parent, and her daughter, as becoming a teen, was going through teen stuff. And I had found a book, and one of the chapters in it was Don't Shake the Chrysalis. All the yeah. things you put into play, they're all there. It may not end up in the same place you thought, but those values are always going to be there. And I think that's it. That's that message is in your book without speaking to those things, but it, it is it is right there, and that's greatly appreciated by all of us. Yeah, thank Love you. It. Yeah, I think <sighs> you see. Unfortunately, I feel like both in the news and on Twitter and online everywhere, you see a lot of examples of like parents going the other direction, where it's like clearly the intention that they think they have in their mind is like. I want what's best for my kid. They don't know what's best for them. Mm. So like, I, I have to be the one to like tell them and make sure that they're not, you know, screwing their life up by, you know, deciding that they're this or that or the other. Whereas like, you can't, you can't push that. Like you're gonna, you know, you, you can end up doing really horrible damage to your kid by like Amen. forcing them to be something that they aren't, even if like you have the best of intentions. The road to hell is paved with good <laughs> intentions, as, as they say. <laughs> uh, I, I want to jump in a couple of quick, Steve, before you go to the other stuff. There, yeah, you, of there are some couple of side characters, and, and hopefully they're not going to be in the future. In the store, Nadia and Sam love, love <laughs> them. 
because they they help they help Frankie come to some very big decision. Their whole it's it's the training montage sequence, I guess you want to call it the dress up sequence. And then we, we get to Frankie's concert outfit, which is for those who are looking at it yet, but will it's you know, black pants and suspenders, kind of floods, uh, white shirt, a floofy tie. We got some Chuck Taylors going on. I know some people may say one thing. I'm saying that that's uh, Lashayla from The Wasp. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, it's a very it's a very similar look. I think. Um, I think I. I don't know how Did much you have I notes on that. It. Did you? You know, <laughs> now that I think about it, I was like. Because there's uh, basically a two-page sequence in there where Frankie goes through a lot of like different outfits over the course of two pages, and I think basically I my notes to that on that debris are just basically go nuts. Um, like, you know, we want to we want to end up with something that is sort of in between that feels uh, <laughs> feels non-binary, feels androgynous yeah. to some extent. That like, you know is a bit more like cleaned up and and a, an outfit than what Frankie usually wears, which is, you know, mostly a lot of hoodies and baggy, baggy pants. Clothes. Yeah. yeah, I clocked that immediately. <laughs> no, my favorite, my favorite was the harried band teacher who was just like, whatever, oh. man, Let's <laughs> lock that beat down, let's go, <laughs> just wear whatever. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think like, I think that happens a lot with, with teachers and other sort of like mid-level authority figures where they're like, look, you got to have this, this, and this. Whatever. And I don't, yeah, I don't, go JK really, like, Simmons and whiplash be like, I don't care how yeah. you get there. Yeah. But like, there. this is, this is what the requirements are. But like, you know, they don't, they don't know that Frankie is having this whole like sort of crisis of self. They're just yeah. like, look, you got to have either black like, pants or a black, black skirt. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I have one more, and this is a this is a punning question, Jeremy. I know you love these sort of things. So, is the Dog Knight a rip on Batman, or are you oh. planning a? Is your third volume going to be titled Dog Knight Three as a riff about that band from the seventies and eighties? <laughs> uh, you know, I I had not thought about Three Dog Knight before I uh, started writing this, and then it's like <laughs> I started looking stuff like as I started googling things as you know the book was coming out i was mm -hmm. like ah this is, clicks a lot a lot of returns for three dog nights related stuff yeah. um and i think like i had kind of clocked the um dark night dog night bit a little bit um but it was like it was also not one of those things that like i intended as i was doing it but like i think after we settled on the title like i looked it up and the Dogman book had done a Batman parody called oh. uh, The Bark Knight. And I was like, oh, so close. <laughs> so close. <laughs> I barely missed that. So, so you need a variant cover doing the Frank Miller thing, right? Or is that just too obvious? I mean, if, if we could, I don't, I don't know how much they, uh, they do they variant covers on these on <laughs> hard on hardcover books. On a hardback like, graphic novel. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Maybe uh maybe after the trilogy, if we you know end up doing then a fourth one, we Collection. can do the dog night returns. You know? I was gonna say the tenth anniversary uh oversized hardcover ultimate edition. <laughs> and we'll do we'll do one with, you know, Frankie is aging 
dog night in the distant future fighting oh, mutants. Gosh. You know? with, with, with Dallas flying next to him like Cassie was on the cover. There you go. All okay, right. Steve, back to you. Back to me. <laughs> Let's get into the fast five to wrap this up. <laughs> All right, Jeremy, you have to choose who is the better Hollywood dog, Benji or Beethoven? Beethoven. That is the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> Got more more attitude. Much right. more like a real dog than Benji. Yes. <laughs> Without looking it up, how many Air Bud movies make up the Air Bud film franchise? I will give you multiple choice. Are we hold I have I do have to ask, are we including the Air Buddies films? Yes, we are. Oh god. Well, How many case. Air Bud movies make up the Air Bud film franchise? Is it 10, 8, 12, or 16? Or too many. That's <laughs> I'm going to say 12. You are correct. There oh. are 12 Air Bud movies. Amazing. I, I know from my, from my time in the early 2000s working at Blockbuster that there were a lot of Air Buddies films <laughs> produced very quickly. Yep. There are five Air Bud films, and then Air Buddies is the sixth, and then the rest of them are all Air Buddies movies. Yeah, tiny talking dogs. That's right. Put the money's out, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Joey, you want to take the, the rest of this? Yeah, how many corgis did Queen Elizabeth have in her lifetime? Less than 30 <laughs> or more than 30? <laughs> Ooh, in her lifetime. I'm going to go with more than 30. You are correct. Wow. <laughs> With their little butts, with their little corgi butts. Because she is had like true? five and six at a time. Yeah. Um, that was a and dog. she lived that to be about dog. a zillion years old. So. Yeah. yeah. She's she's still kicking, man. They they coronated that guy over the weekend. She's like, F this guy. No, I'm just kidding. She's R.I.P. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm pretty uh, sure she doesn't, mean she doesn't have a comment. She's a robot. She's an, she's an animatronic robot right now. Uh, did you have pets as a kid, Jeremy? Um. Yeah, mostly cats, though. Whoa! I see. Well, I grew up largely in my my young life. I grew up largely in California, and it's very difficult to like live somewhere that they'll let you have a dog in California. Right. So Steve had a whole moment where he was like, "I'm the only cat person on the podcast, and let's talk about cats." And you stayed mom the whole time. (laughs) I don't like cats. This is what we had. Wow. Uh, my favorite, my favorite cats that we ever had were the cats that acted like dogs. So, mm. yeah. Oh, you said you are, you are that much more allergic to cats than dogs, didn't you? Yeah. And uh, I didn't realize it until I went to college how much allergic to cats I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. I just thought I had allergy Potter's issues all the time. Here's a very bad old joke. What it is, what is it has four legs and chases cats? What? Mrs. Katz and her lawyer. Oh, God. (laughs) Good night. Thank you. (laughs) Go back to Long Island. Go back to Long Island with that joke. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Uh, It's it's Groucho Marxist. The last question is, are you hyped for Fast 10? Because you had a car hanging from the ceiling, and I was getting Vin Diesel vibes from that. (laughs) I am hyped for Fast 10. I am still uh, three movies behind at this point. Um, We've been... We've been watching them for our bonus content on Progressively Horrified. I still haven't seen Seven on, so I'm uh, I gotta get. We gotta, gotta do it, man. Like, do it. Seven, eight, I haven't nine. seen two on. 
Oh, well, Tokyo <laughs> Drift any, is iconic. So. I love the Fast and the Furious movies. Every time we do the Fast Five questions, I always go off on a tangent about the Fast and the Furious movies. Um, seven, eight, nine, you have to watch them. You have to. All the characters that are going to be in 10 will be in seven, eight, nine. Yeah, to this point, I feel like having seen it through six now, I feel like the thing to do to introduce people to the franchise is to watch five first. Yeah. And then and then I guess from five, you have to go back and see four because four because six is a sequel to four. And then after. So you have to go five, four, <laughs> six, three. One, two. Um, yeah, and then I guess one and two. And then 79. You got to see one and two before you get to, you know, Paul Walker dying. Um, and oh. and Los Pandaleros, the short film. Yes. I saw Hobbs and Shaw. No, you don't have to watch that one. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, wait, I, get, no, I, get, I, I get no credit. I get no, no credit wait. for it. I think you do now because I think Vanessa Kirby's coming back. Oh. I like Hobbs and Shaw. I Everybody cries on that movie. It's okay. Stick of the rock, okay? <laughs> it's fun. It's stupid. Oh, I I remember saying it. Well, I think we actually mentioned it on the show. I was just like, there was a lot of testosterone in that film. Oh yeah, a lot of testosterone. <laughs> anytime you anytime you involve Jason Statham in a movie, there's bound to be lots <laughs> of testosterone. No, Jason Statham is the best. The problem is the Rock. A lot of swinging dicks in that movie. A lot of swinging, big, big, <laughs> big swinging dicks. Yep. Anyway, I, I love the Rock. The rock. I've, is that I've been a episode a, title? I've been no, a Rock fan since. Uh, Walking tall, like since before he was the rock, when he was just like Wayne's part of the nation of domination. When he was, yeah, yeah, with Ron Simmons, fanny packs, (laughs) Ron Simmons, yeah, he's wearing uh, daishikis and fanny packs and whatnot. No, I I gotta stop picking on the rock, he's on a big career downswing right now. So, (laughs) this is where you kick him him when he's down, down. can't kick, yeah, yeah, best time to kick him, he'll be back. Will we ever have another chance to kick the rock? Vin, Vin Diesel will get him into Fast Eleven. You know it. You know the the wild thing is though, like uh, who saw the uh, Dave Bautista becoming a better actor than the Rock swing <laughs> coming? Like honestly, and we'll talk about this when we talk about Guardians and like always, maybe two and a half hours. Uh, <laughs> Dave Bautista is great. He is so good. Knock at I mean, the cabin. I have seen one of his first films, The Man with the Iron Fist, in which he was not that great. No, but you know, he was there. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Did you see the My Spy movie? I haven't seen My Spy. I, I know of My Spy. He's genuinely funny in that film. Yeah, it's it's Dave Bautista's pacifier. Um, yeah. <laughs> was the rock one where he's the tooth fairy? Tooth fairy. Tooth fairy. Yeah. 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 Pacifier was Vin Diesel, right? Yep. What did I just watch that the girl from My Spy was also in? Probably My Spy. <laughs> <laughs> Once I'm going to figure this out. Dave Batista. Because I, I think those early films, like Man with the Iron Fist. First of all, Man with the Iron Fist is an anomaly in and of itself. They're they're doing a they're doing a B movie with that that like oh. yeah, Riza. You know, like, um, but. Dave Bautista, the, like those early films that he was doing, I think he was also in like a Scorpion King spinoff movie or something. Oh yeah, he was in the like 
So the, I think the straight to video Scorpion yeah, King. Like I'm telling one. you, watch Hotel Artemis. Yes, he's great. I've in that seen love it. that movie. I think that. of that movie. His yeah. early films, like The Rock and I like John Cena. Who blackmailed Jodie Foster? Go ahead. Like the, <laughs> his early films was just like, oh, he's a wrestler. Let's just have him be these big hulking action guys. But once people like unlocked, like he is this gentle giant who is can be funny and sincere and charming in a very kind of oafy way. Blade Runner 2049, man. Oh my gosh. It's fantastic in that movie. Yeah. It's a anyway. short role, but he, he owns it. It's real good. You know, Even, I've seen uh, that movie twice and cannot remember a single thing about it. Oh dude. It's I don't so remember. Gorgeous. Glass onion too. He's glass onion. Uh, Chloe Coleman was in My Spy. She was also in Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, one. I got to yeah. watch that. Everyone's raving about it. Uh, it's real good. I watched it the other night. I started to rent it the other night on my uh, pay-per-view, and it was like, to rent, 1999. I'm like, no, I want that. Pay-per-view, was it 1999 when the, you did that? V, uh, the VOD. I, it was like 1999. I'm like, uh, no. You can buy a Blu-ray for that. Exactly. That's crazy. I was like, I'll wait for it to come out everywhere else. Yeah, I'm starting to think, I think Dave Bautista might be the best actor slash wrestler there has been. Like, because I oh, mean, I what, what's so. the, what was the what one from against The Rock? I mean, Hulk The Rock Hogan? is obviously Hulk like Hogan right did, up there. Uh, Hulk Hogan, Hogan is a, Commando. a racist shithead. Uh, <laughs> what was the one in Trinity? Uh, Trinity. Triple H. Yeah, there you go. Oh my yeah. God, that scene. I don't... Paul, Paul Levesque. <laughs> I, I don't know, though, uh, there's, there's a wrestler actor performance better than Roddy Piper and They Live. Yeah, oh, Roddy yes. Piper's got They Live, but that's like all he's got. Jeremy, uh, what agreed, are you talking about? Agreed, but one... Jeremy, David Arquette was a WCW heavyweight champion. He is definitely a wrestler. Oliver Platt. That's the key, <laughs> baby. <laughs> oh my God. Um, wasn't Scott Con in that? Uh, one of yes, one of the cons. Yes, Genghis Khan. I, I will know. give you Batista. Yes, I do think John Cena has yeah. found his niche, though. Yeah, and I think Peacemaker. Long... Yeah, I so, think it's Batista, John Cena, The Rock, and then everybody else. <laughs> here's what I'm going to say. I remember everyone having the very same vibe about The Rock when he first hit that space where he was saying things other than can you smell what i'm cooking where he sort of got into what was that what was whatever that series that he was a billions no what was it what was that series uh billions billions yeah, billions, yeah. um so when he sort of was doing these different things and i think people were like oh okay he maybe he can do these other people were all there and then he hit this point and it was sort of just like all right well, apparently he's peaked, and that's pretty much as far there as he's going to get. And now it was sort of like he was trying to capitalize on that before everyone, before the jig was up. And people <laughs> realized so skyscraper <laughs> rampage. Let's go down the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was just like, let's just let's just crank him out before the jig is. I feel like John Cena is in this critical space right now where he could either go the Bautista route or he could go that rock route. Yeah. Um, also, we're yeah. all wrong here. Andre the Giant in Princess Bride. They've both got one, but they're both like, they chose the best one. They chose the best one. Yeah, yeah there you go. Best two movies. 
Yeah, I mean, you got Randy Savage and Spider Man also. So. Oh, Bonesaw oh. is ready. Ready. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could all agree that Hulk Hogan's the worst, though. Yeah, Hulk Hogan's the worst. Oh, God. Jesse Ventura. Jesse the on. Body. Wasn't Jesse the Body in yeah, uh, Predator 1? Yep, he's in the yes. original Predator. Doesn't Hulk Hogan show up in Gremlins 2? Yes. He does, right? Yes, he's, he's in the he's movie in, theater. He's in the, he's in the theater and he, come, he, he he dresses him down. Show the real movie. Yeah, yeah. You, you, still can't to watch too. you still can't convince me that he and Dog the Bounty Hunter aren't the same person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care Snoop, what you say. Snoop Dogg, uh, Snoop Dogg dropped uh, people's elbow at WrestleMania this year. It's pretty rad. Oof. Yep, he wasn't <laughs> supposed to, but it happened. Yeah. Yeah. I, live I live theater, you... baby. Live theater. Yeah. Shane McMahon ripped his whole his whole ass hamstring jumping. So. <laughs> Apparently, my dog has thoughts as she started growling. Anyway, Steve, it's your show. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think Jeremy, I think we're gonna we're gonna cut you loose so that we could talk about some books and some guardians. But uh, congratulations on the launch of your new title. You've got a lot going on right now, and uh, this is a real good one. I had a blast reading it. I think we all did. And uh, we wish you nothing but the best when you launch it, man. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's nice to, I feel like I was as busy as I've ever been over the couple of years of the pandemic. And some of that stuff's finally coming out now. So now I get to be like, nice. hey, guess what I did? Nice. <laughs> Anything else we yeah. can look forward to soon? Uh, well, if people haven't seen it, uh, I did a six-part arc in, in Marvel's uh, Infinite Comics, uh, Love Unlimited, uh, where we did a story about Gwenpool. Um, the internet will tell you about it if you don't want to go read it uh, because uh, Gwen came out as uh, asexual in that story. Um, and so uh, it's people have divisive opinions about it. But will that be uh, coming out in print the way a lot of the uh, those do? Uh, they haven't done that with any of the Love Unlimited stuff yet. Uh. Um, there has been a lot of people asking me about it the last week. Uh, so I, I do wonder if. Uh, you know, maybe the demand is there. Marvel will uh, do something with it. I certainly think in the Love Unlimited stories, for people who haven't been reading them, there is enough like queer love stories in there that they could definitely do, you know, a whole a whole collection of, of those together and, and put them out. Cool. Awesome. You have um, anything else coming out in the future? Like I know you've got uh, Dog Night books two and three on the way, but anything before that? Uh, so this November we should have uh, the second book of school for extraterrestrial girls. Nice. Um, yeah, that is uh, officially on the calendar for November now. Um, got some more pony stuff coming later this year. I did Fuck a yeah. uh, I did a story <laughs> in the uh, um, in uh, friend friend of the show Trina Robbins anthology, her uh, pro abortion anthology, um, which is funded now and i think coming out in a couple of months um so i have a story in there that i did with uh, my friend ryan oakley um they have not announced it but there's more sea of thieves uh comics coming Ooh. and then uh yeah i also did a uh a graphic novel with uh, my friend and co-host from progressively horrified uh ben khan which is uh should be they should be announcing very soon and we'll be out Ooh. in the next couple of years mm. secrets yeah. secrets yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole like you can't see it, but there's a whiteboard full of projects that I'm looking at on the other side of this monitor right now. You got something that you didn't mention that I know about that I won't talk about here, but I'm very excited. Secrets, secrets. Jeremy and I play Fortnite together, so I get the uh, 
I get for oh, real, real. Wow. I think yeah. the hint would be there that he didn't mention it. The breaking news is that <laughs> Whitley Whitley has a Hickman board with all these connections on it, and he's not yes. telling us about it. <laughs> there's, there's not connections. There's just lists of things that I, I'm worried about like, over here. Here's how ponies connects to Dog Knight. <laughs> to, to Gwenpool. And then the incursion will come. <laughs> hey. I could easily ride a My Little Pony's Gwynpool crossover. That's uh, yeah, you just have to get Hasbro and Marvel to sign off on that one. Yeah, amazing. All right, man, this has been fun. I'm glad we were able to get this together. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us. And uh, where can we everybody... reach you at, Jeremy? What's that? Yeah, you gotta uh, give me the socials. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. No, uh, I'm still on Twitter, unfortunately. At uh, jrome58, it's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. Um, I'm back on Tumblr at jeremywhitley.tumblr.com. Nice. And uh, that's, I mean, that's it. Uh, don't don't mess with me on Facebook. I don't I don't go there. It's, <laughs> it's still there, but it's just it's just for my family, basically at this point. And people can follow uh, Progressively Horrified on Twitter as well, correct? Yes, you can follow Progressively Horrified on Twitter and. Uh, subscribe to it wherever probably wherever you're listening to this podcast and uh we have new episodes that come out every friday talking about uh progressive politics and scary movies or you can see jeremy lifting on instagram every now and again if you want Dude. <laughs> yeah my it's i i have an instagram also that is also jrome58 but uh that is mostly yeah uh accountability <laughs> videos from working out and uh the occasional oh yeah i should probably talk about this book i have coming out here too it's very motivating. Maybe. It's very motivating yeah. you watching you lift, you know, a car. <laughs> as I'm sitting, uh, yeah, as I'm sitting there with my legs crossed on the couch, like, where's that ice cream? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you do it you, for yeah. me so I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 where I go when I need to like push some anxiety around. I just you know go go lift a uh, you know go lift a thousand pounds with my legs, and then I don't have to worry about uh, those other things anymore because I'm tired. and that's good stuff man all right hang out with us past the break but uh when we come back we'll have uh maybe a few lightning rounds and definitely some talk about guardians of the galaxy volume three we'll catch you in a minute everybody we are back we want to thank jeremy again for joining yeah. us this week uh go and pick up the dog night in stores next week dog 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 uh dogs you like dogs uh anybody no really no where's that from it's from snatch the guy ritchie movie uncultured swine deep let's move on too deep a cut <laughs> so deep uh let's do a couple lightning rounds before we get to our guardians review uh i'll go first because i'll be honest with you i was just saying uh off air i don't even know where the week went it has been wild how fast monday comes along our recording night and uh i don't know if i blacked out or what but there are definitely a couple of nights where i didn't get to read anything and then there's something that i am reading that I'm saving for next week's show 
because we will have some very special guests coming on next week as well. Uh, and I'm kind of saving my energy for that. But um, real quick, Where Monsters Lie uh, wrapped up this past week. I've talked about this a bunch on the podcast. This is the Serial Killer Commune book. It is positively wacky. Joey, have you been reading this? Um, yes. And I feel really bad because today at dinner, I was like, I need to read a couple of books that I know my co-hosts are going to talk about. And I forgot to read that one. And I'm sorry. <laughs> so no spoilers. No, no, no. no. I mean, this is, this is the final issue of what I'm assuming is book one. And, uh, it ends very, uh, what is the word? Satisfactorily. Sure. I think, uh, it's positively madness. It's maybe not as out there as something like Plush is, but Where Monsters Lie is a whole lot of fun. Uh, I love the conclusion here. Some of the poetic deaths for these titans of uh, of killing sprees is, is quite nice. And uh, this is where everything comes to a head. Everything's on fire and all of the really big like michael myers type characters the the texas chainsaw massacre characters if you will the sawmen and stuff like that they're all kind of getting uh what's due to them and um there's a particular moment with one of our heroes of the story where he's given a choice uh to make a sacrifice or not and i love the choice that he makes this is the choice that i would make uh, and I, I admire, mm. I admire his, uh, his, his gumption for getting it done. I'll just leave it at that. You'll see. Uh, let's see. Other than that, honestly, like I said, I'm saving something for next week and I really don't remember reading much else. I have watched a couple of movies. Chris brought a couple of movies to the show last week. I had a chance to catch up with Dungeons and Dragons and Renfield over uh, the past few days. Really, really, really love Dungeons and Dragons. I play Dungeons and Dragons with uh, a group of our friends every other Saturday. We've been having a really good time of it. It's a completely original world that our friend Kevin made up. And uh, we've been doing that for the past, probably the past year and change. And uh, they really threw a lot of crazy stuff at us this past weekend. And we watched the movie like right on the heels of that. So seeing all the comparisons to what a real D&D campaign is like, it was genuinely funny in places. Some of the action scenes were absolutely spectacular. Uh, Michelle Rodriguez in particular really loved her character, really enjoyed Sophia Lewis. And yeah, it's just, it's one of those movies where a lot of people have come back to me saying like, oh, it's a really good time. You should see it. And because of the old Dungeons and Dragons movie and how easy it is to screw up something like that, you don't (laughs) quite believe it. But then I watched it and yeah, like it's actually legitimately good. I hope they make another one. I think they figured it out with this one. And I love that Sam Weir from Freaks and Geeks, the little brother, co-directed this movie and has been playing D&D for pretty much his whole life. And so this is coming from people it was a passion project for them. It wasn't just Gee, a paycheck. Maybe that helps, right? Yeah. <laughs> they should do that a lot more. Yeah, it certainly helped my enjoyment of the film. I thought Chris Pine was great. Like I said, Michelle Rodriguez was fantastic. Uh, Justice Smith was good. Hugh Grant was funny. 
Uh, it was it was very entertaining and it was very D and D. It wasn't ashamed of what it was. It was just having a good t- a good time. I really enjoyed it. Um, and Renfield, I think I might have liked Renfield more than some other people. Uh, for me, this movie was very much Nicolas Cage and Nicholas Holt. I thought they both did a fantastic job. Nicholas Cage throws himself into every role that he takes on, and he was just having a grand old time playing Dracula in this movie. And I love when Nicolas Cage gets particularly cagey, and it's been a while, especially after watching something as good as Pig, that I've seen him kind of do the more zany. I haven't seen the uh, the other movie that he did with, um, was it Pedro Pascal? That he did. What was that movie? Um, oh, um, the the burden of yeah, the unbear no, oh, unbearable God. burden of being a celebrity or whatever. Yes, yeah, famous. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm the looking un- it up. The unbearable up. weight it- of the unbearable weight of massive talent. Massive talent. The unbearable. Yeah. It's weight his of being John talent. Malkovich. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me see. I just want to make sure I've got these names right. It is Pedro Pascal. Yes, I saw uh, that movie. I saw it. Was it any good? It was fine. If you're a Nick Cage fan, it was fun. Okay. I, I I own it. I should watch it. Um, I look, Renfield is a goofy gore fest. And I really enjoyed some of the cinematography and lighting. Um the performance from Aquafina was okay. I've seen I've seen it, better from as her. it always is. Yeah, have you seen it, the farewell? Oh well, of course I saw the farewell. The farewell she was rules. Great in the farewell. But I if really, Aquafina really is just going to do Aquafina, then it's going to be Aquafina. Yes, no, that is very true. Um, but yeah, it was you know it was a good time. It was one of those movies where I watched it in the exact mindset that I needed to be to enjoy it, and it'll be one of those things that maybe I'll pop it on sometime down the road, but. Uh, in the last couple of years and watching a couple of movies and turning them off part of the way through. Cause I feel like I'm wasting my time. Made it all the way through you Renfield. And I had a good time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's I, the I bar. Don't get too, that's the uh, bar. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Don't want to get too deeply into it. Cause wow. I think when Chris is back, we are going to talk for some Renfield because we both have opinions. Um, I enjoyed a lot, but I think it didn't quite nail what it was going for. See, I think it did. Like the, the toxic the, relationship angle of it. Yeah, but I want uh, that would have been great. And there's a whole in in real life, IRL, as the kids say, there's a thing between Bram Stoker and his boss, Sir Henry Irving, which is why he wrote Dracula in the first place, which was about a toxic relationship. And in my head, this could have been like Shadow of the Vampire and been something really interesting with all that. And we get to all the heads exploding and arms coming off and whatever. And that's cool in and of itself. I, I don't know that it ever blended for me in the way it did for you. I, I mean, it didn't, it didn't necessarily blend. blend. I just, <laughs> I turned, I turned my brain off. Like I was, when, when okay. I, when I saw the tone of this movie and realized that that was the kind of movie it was going to be, it gave me permission to just sit back and not have to worry about anything for oh, an hour absolutely. and 43 no, absolutely. minutes. Right. And the two Knicks are both great. Yeah. No, no question about that. So yeah, no, it was, it was a great way to spend an hour and a half. Yes. No question. Yeah. 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 It's not, like I said, I don't know 
I don't know if I'm running back to revisit it, but I had fun. I, I, I wish that it had done better in the theaters because I wish that other people got the chance to make these types of movies and maybe do it a little bit better next time. But because people don't show up, they they rarely get the chance to to do this kind of thing. So uh, yeah, look, it I'm did a, better than Tom Cruise's Mummy movie. It did, <laughs> and I'm a so, I'm a I'm a go. gorehound. <laughs> so all of the all the gratuitous blood flying everywhere and beating people with limbs and everything like that that's my bread and butter right there. I like to have a good time. So it was. Have you was seen fun. Evil Dead Rise yet? No, but it comes no. out uh, Tuesday. Oh, no way. Watch it. No Watch way. it. Oh, I will. Awesome. I will. I definitely will. Absolutely not. Oh, come on, Joey. Nope. nope. Now that uh, <laughs> now that Bronwyn is home, we can we can get that tomorrow and watch it this week. So oh, before You'll next week's that. show, I will try to yeah. watch Evil Dead Rise, and I will bring a new kitten onto the podcast. Oh, that's nice. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, this Sunday, we're we're kitten the pro- kitten proofing the house right now. <laughs> It's yeah. a process. Anyway, um, now, after having read Jeremy's book, would you have gotten a puppy? No, <laughs> oh, I would love. Okay. Like, I'm not a. I love dogs. I love animals in general. I would love to think that I could. I could have a dog and manage a dog. If I got a puppy I, and a kitten together. They could work. I got an animal story for you in my lightning round. If you want me to go next, yes, Let's, you got a what? I got an animal, an animal story, story for you. <laughs> oh yeah, letter. Joey, go. Wait, wait, am I going? Is this yeah. it? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a while. <laughs> so in the month that I've been away from the podcast, what have I been up to? What have I been up to? I asked for three minutes. I'll probably need 15. So here's what we're up to. The reason why I was off in the first place back at the beginning of April was because I went to Disneyland. Oh, no, sorry. Not Disneyland. Ooh. Disney World. And Disney oh. World is awesome, and I loved it, and it was fantastic. And I went to Animal Kingdom because Animal Kingdom is the best park, and it was so fun. Um, but after the parks, uh, Emily and myself and her family went on a Disney cruise on the Disney Wish. And Ooh. I don't know if you've seen any of this stuff, but Disney Wish is the cruise ship that has the Marvel oh, yeah. restaurant yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to see it's 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 talking comics podcast related um and that we had dinner there the first night and it was so fun the food on all cruise ships are great but you know it's like a it's like a there's screens all around the restaurant and the music's yeah. playing look at this room yeah did, man. They, did, the sh- looking- they did the show for you they did the show and everything nice. and it was really cool and like uh, Kamala Khan was on it and, and Anthony Mackie's Falcon and Brie Larson shows up. And it's a ton of fun. And then at the end of dinner, freaking Spider-Man rolled in, but in real person, like he, like a guy in wow. a came out and I gave him a high <laughs> five and I felt like a kid again. Like <laughs> you don't think you're going to be like, it's a Disney cruise. You're like, Oh, it's gotta be for kids. But then you're on this boat and like you turn the corner and goofy's there and you're like, all right, I get I'm it. invested. Like, this is yeah, fun. And I like Goofy was walking up the hallway and I was like, Goofy, where's Max at? And he was like, oh, well, Max is sleeping. You know, like it's just, it is what it is. Um, but it was a ton of fun. Got a, a very relaxing. This was during spring break. But the animal story that I have to share with you is we got off the boat and we had a few hours to go before our flight home. 
So Emily did some research and she was like, what can you do around Orlando airport or whatever? And there's a place in Orlando called Gatorland. Yes. Go for it. Gatorland is exactly what you think it is. It is a theme park slash wildlife reserve of okay. alligators. And I want you to guess. I want I want to throw this around the room. Yeah. I want to throw, how many alligators do you think are at Gatorland? Thousand is too many. Aaron says one is too many. Bob? I say a thousand. One thousand, Steve? Um I don't know. I'm on the website right now. I'm trying to cheat by looking no. it up. <laughs> oh, you. The answer I don't is, know. I don't know. The answer is over 2,000 alligators Woof. at Gatorland. Damn. Gatorland. I, uh, here's the thing about Gatorland. Gatorland, we spent about eight hours there. Wow. And you would think, like, what the hell were you doing at Gatorland? First of all, you go in and there's just alligators everywhere. They're just all laying out in the sun. And they have like alligator shows where they like hang chickens on fishing poles and the alligators jump oh, yeah, on the man. and eat it, eat it. Wow. Yes. And then there's like a train that like takes you around the park as well. But it's all a trick because Gatorland is actually like <laughs> an intense wildlife reserve that has like 10 acres of like pristine swampland and Gatorland back in the 80s. First of all, Gatorland is older than Disney World. It was like founded in like 1948 or whatever. Wow. Gatorland like single-handedly brought alligators back from the endangered species list. Because oh like this wild wow. Yes, it's crazy. And like we went to all these shows eating like hot dogs and like, you know, like eating popcorn and watching alligators eat chickens <laughs> off of fishing poles. In the meanwhile, we're just learning tons of facts about alligators from these two guys named like Booger and Scooter or some Boogie and Scooter or something like that. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, and, and, and the funny thing about Booger and Scooter too is like, I'm I'm pretty sure they were just the same two guys that did every single show and they just changed costumes since the, since, since the 40s. It's, yeah, it's, it was so funny and like and like quirky and so exactly what you would think. Like you roll up and there's just like giant alligator like ceramic sculpture in the front, but you learn so much and it was just. It was the perfect day. It was like I had so much fun at Gatorland. If anyone's did around, you, did you go on the screaming gator zip line? No, we did not do the zip line. Oh. Um, Would you want to do a zip line over the gators? No, so two thousand gators. No, the package that we got gave us gator feed, and we we were able to like feed the alligators. Yeah. Like, oh and, man, they're also they also have like capybaras there, and Emily loves capybaras. So <gasps> yeah, that's cute. Yes. Um, but anyway, Gatorland, if you're anyone's in Orlando and you want to like learn about alligators and see what 2000 alligators look like, just hanging out, go to Gatorland. It was the most fun we had that I'll, whole trip. I'll also say this. Um, if you're ever in Jacksonville, which is where my family lives and uh, where I was about three and a half years ago, uh, we went to St. Augustine Alligator Farm yeah. and zoo, uh, Zoological Park. And it's I, Gatorland sounds like it's a little cooler, but <laughs> Alligator Farm is is pretty good. It was uh, it was an entertaining afternoon. Yeah, for sure. it was it was so fun, and like we, especially because we went in expecting like 
the you know like you know those like black top amusement parks that they have in yeah. suburbia that's what a we were like a couple of sluggish alligators in a pond yeah that's what we were at, expecting yeah. and then it was just the and it was like a really clean park the funny thing about the zip lines and this will be the last thing i say about gatorland because i could talk about gatorland for the next five hours um the funny thing about the zip line is like there were like zip line stations and you could like zip anywhere in the park but then when you finish the zip line you just climbed down and walked around the park so you were still wearing the harness and everything just like Ooh. walking around the park just like chilling minding your own business climbing up ladders and zipping around um but anyway gatorland was awesome gatorland. they did have gator nuggets on the menu but no I think, that's wrong i think that's wrong i think if you ordered it they would kick you out I think it was a trick. I yeah. think it was a trap order. But anyway, so I did that. And then the other reason I've been off the show is because I've been working on uh, the 11th hour, which longtime listeners of the show will know that back in 2018, I did a show. I took a show um, downtown New York. We did a couple of versions of it and a festival performance down in Tribeca. Um, this is an original musical that my buddy uh, Dave Seaman wrote. Um, and it's about central New Jersey, New Brunswick, basement rock bands who get stuck in a black, uh, uh, get stuck on doomsday when a black hole suddenly erupts outside of Earth's orbit and they need to find a way to digitize everyone's consciousnesses and make us all robots to live again in the future. As it's you a, would. As you would. It's a crazy <laughs> sci-fi rock and roll musical about New Jersey. It's a love letter to New Brunswick, right where I grew up. Um, and, you know, I've been with the show since some of its early readings back in 2016. And then we took it downtown New York in 2018. And now finally, five years later, we're finally doing it uh, kind of a full scale production at a community theater in central New Jersey, in, in Somerset, Perfect. about five miles outside new brunswick um so i've been working on that for the last two months really doing lights and design work and assistant directing and we opened this past weekend and it was amazing such an amazing run the audiences have loved it it's so fun um you can get you can listen to the soundtrack online it's the 11th hour oh. musical at Bandcamp, i think um but I'm so proud of him for he's he's co-directing it with his wife and one of my good friends, Mariella. They were both in my wedding party. Um, and uh, it's so fun getting the band back together, getting the team back together and working with a cast that's, you know, from New Jersey doing a show about New Jersey. Um, and it's a crazy sci-fi kind of like Rocky Horror, Toxic Avenger type show. So if anyone's in Central Jersey this next weekend coming up, we have another weekend of shows, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, it's a fantastic show. And my hope, my dream is that enough people come this weekend that want to do it again. You know, community theater in, in Central Jersey is a huge kind of uh, community. And uh, my hope is that someone comes and they're like, oh, I want to do this show. I want to do this show. Mm -hmm. um, we have some kids coming from Rutgers, uh, which I'm really excited Ooh. about. Uh, and I hope that they want to do it at those Rutgers theaters, which would be so awesome. Um, but the 11th hour, you can check, look at us up on uh, Instagram too, at Rock Apocalypse, baby. Um, Rock Apocalypse. Yeah. So what else have I been up to? I did do some reading of some things. Uh, I read Love Everlasting, Bob. So when you talk oh. about that, I'll talk about that with you. Um, <laughs> I tried to stay up to date with some books that I've been following. I uh, Once Upon a Time at the End of the World. 
uh, from Boom was awesome. They finished the first arc. If you didn't get a chance to read it, I talked about the first three or four issues on the show, uh, but it ended really, really strong. And I know there's a second volume coming out soon. I've been staying up to date with I Hate This Place, which has taken a hard left turn. If you've been reading I Hate This Place, I Hate This Place number eight took a hard left turn. Like you thought it was just about like ghosts and like aliens and things at this haunted farm, but it took a turn and I don't know if I'm into it, but I'm obviously still going to read it because that book is awesome. But the the last issue was a little weird for me. Um, And of course, Sins of Sinister, which I had so much fun with and loved so, 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 so much. Uh, Classic summer X-Men crossover. Um, I will always be there for those. Um, so much so that like this past week when like Sins of Sinister was over, I was like, ah, I could take a break. I don't need to jump back in right away. <laughs> but for Sins of Sinister, I was like week by week reading every single random future dystopian issue. Um, but yeah, I'm really behind on pretty much everything else. And I'm eager to catch up um, on my list, of course, is like I'm behind on Captain Marvel. Uh, I really want to read Blue Beetle. I was asking for some recs from the group here, so I'm excited to jump onto that too. Yeah. But we don't have any rehearsals. This is the last week in the shows, and then I'm going to dive back into comics and um, read. Oh, and I after the show last week, I read World Tree, and I... <laughs> I should have mm. listened to you guys. That I was, told you. <laughs> I, I told you. Started and I was like, "What is? Ha- why are there nipples? Why are there <laughs> knives? Like, there's so much going on. Why is this girl wearing a? There was a lot going on, and and then it takes a lot of turns, and it was it was brutal. James Tynan, didn't he also do Mimetic? Am I making that yes. up? Yes. Yeah. 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 No, that's him. So this is obviously something that he's been like vibing with since the beginnings of his career, this like mm. underweb, like power of he the memes thing, you know, like this of course is gruesomely violent, whereas that was a little bit more fun <laughs> and a little bit goofier, <laughs> but yeah, world tree was world tree was hardcore. Was Have you checked out immortal sergeant? Yeah, I read about three issues of it. I think I'm going to wait till it's all done. What do you think of it? I I like it. It doesn't have the... I, I was reading it because I thought I was going to get that kind of like I Kill Giants like heart. But I think that the team is in a little bit more of a... I was going to say cynical, but I'll just say 2023 place. Um, A little bit more jaded. So it doesn't necessarily have that same kind of like spirit that I was kind of expecting. I like it. I I like the kind of premise of it, but I think I need to see the whole thing together. Okay. That's what I think about that one. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I've been up to. (laughs) Among other things, I'm sure. I don't really remember. Life's a blur, (laughs) man. You went to the movies. We'll talk about that shortly. I did. I did. I went to the movies. Uh, Aaron, why don't you go ahead and give us a lightning round? Yeah, I'll just talk about stupid stinking comics now, I guess. I don't know. We'll <laughs> see. All right. So here we go. What did I read, actually? I can't remember. Oh, there it is. Adventures of Superman, John Kent, number three. I only brought this up just to briefly talk about it. I kind of wanted to see if John had read it. Tom Taylor, uh, Clayton Henry, Jordi Belair, Colors. I only brought it up because I think in the first two issues, 
we talked about the direction that we thought it was going to go in with the, well, you know, dipping into the multiverse and what John's mission was to go uh, and essentially save the other Kal-El's uh, because Ultraman was on his little rampage to, to do some stuff so that he could do some stuff and no one would be able to stop him from doing that stuff. So, um, but it took a little bit of a turn in this this issue because, well, it kind of took a little bit of a turn in the final page or final scene of the last issue that's picked up in this issue uh, where we are lulled into a sense of, isn't this beautiful to sort of see what, what has become of this other alternate earth but there are some sinister happenings going there. And as you get further and further into the, the issue, you begin to realize which direction this is going in. And, and the, the actual real, uh, well, what I believe may be the real journey might be for John here. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I think they set it us up the first two issues to go in one direction and then took a shift in this direction. The other thing I read was Immortal X-Men number 11, Kieran Gillen. Lucas Warnick, I brought this up uh, again because, you know, I thought John was going to be here and we, because <laughs> right. I wanted to ask some questions. Um, but there was just, if you read Sinister, Sinister you realize that there were a lot of things that went on and it was just, you really did need, you know, Whitley's whiteboard to, uh, <laughs> to be able to piece it all together uh, and keep things going. Um, this kind of, ties up some of the loose ends. Um, I'm trying to go into this without spoiling because there's some things that happened in another book that I think I talked about uh, maybe last week. Um, this kind of wraps up some loose ends, but all, for all intents and purposes, it centers around Storm. And because of the, the, the way things had to play out after, I guess, a timeline was reset, she's got to cover all their bases. Um, essentially, making sure that those people that she can't trust are managed appropriately, while at the same time managing the needs of the Quiet Council, managing the needs of, you know, Araco, um, and then sort of trying to make people atone or admit to what they had done with the role that they played in all of these things happening. There was just so much going on. There were so many A, B, and C storylines happening there that uh, again, my head was spinning, but it just all kept ramping up into the next sort of. This was a book of cliffhangers, essentially. Oh. The whole each section, each section was a different cliffhanger, and you're kind of just anxious to see what's coming next. But the best cliffhanger was that final page that's going to finally answer a question that I've asked several times throughout the last I don't know, I want to say six eight months. What the hell is going on with Colossus? So we'll see. Oh, uh, finally. We, so finally. we will we we will see now um Colossus do what whatever Colossus is gonna do. Um, but yeah, there was some storm stuff, there was some Irene stuff, there was some mystique stuff. Rasputin, I'm kind of trying to wait and see how this Rasputin 4 is gonna gonna play out. There's the pit, there's who's in the pit, there's people coming out of the pit. There's all kinds, there's just, there's, you know, oh, then there was hope and exodus and yeah, that was a bad breakup. I'm just going to say it that way. That was a bad breakup. Um, just a lot of stuff going on. So there, it, it's, 
I'm 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 back into the X Men fold. So hunker down, people. You're going to hear me talk about the X Men quite a bit, especially <laughs> as we're going into the fall of the X Men, which is a book before the fall, which I also read, but I'm not even going to talk about it this week because I'm going to save it. Um, I did read one other thing, Junk Rabbit number two, Jimmy Robinson. That book is getting violent. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> is that that's it? My life, you know. Yep, that's it. I got a question for you. Sure. As someone who was really enjoying the John Kent Superman book, but mm-hmm. got kind of freaked out by them ending the mm-hmm. run that mm-hmm. I was reading and then kind of renumbering and starting this adventures of Superman, John Kent. Is it a continuation of the story I was reading or is it like a hard reset, putting him in a different position? I know he's got new powers. Well, he's, he's getting new powers. He's kind of understanding the thing that he can do now is he's figured out how to, I'm going to answer that question first. And I'm going to go back to your first question. He's figured out how to take all of the solar energy he's stored and just shoot his wad in one burst. Jesus Christ. And just, and just let it go. So is um, this like the Amanda Carr, Jimmy Palmieri, the pro? He can, <laughs> can hey. take down airplanes with it? I mean, what are we talking about here? He just oh he, he gives you he gives you the deadly money shot. Um, okay. And it, but the problem you. is the problem is it takes everything out of him and it takes him a, a little while to re- recover. As, as um, it would, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, but they say that yeah, it, you should have a cigarette with some training. Well, maybe they say he should be able to train himself so that it doesn't do oh, as much. Go, we're going that. to bad places here. Yeah, you know, think about it, think yeah. about it. But um, to your point, it's in the same continuity. So, you know, you do get from issue one of this new reset, you do get that connective tissue uh, between this because you do have the boyfriend still coming along and all that stuff. Um, but it it it's taken him out of the struggle of becoming who he was that we were so engaged with um, and sort of the pride we felt in him realizing who he was, what type of Superman he wanted to be. And it just sort of puts you into this. But I'll be honest with you. It almost seems like, I don't know how to say this without sounding like I'm, I'm shitting on the book. Cause I'm really not. It almost sounds like some of that was for nothing because mm-hmm. With this reset, the her, the purpose I think of Superman Son of Kal El was to assert him as Superman. Um, he is his own Superman. But so far, at least in the first three issues, everything that he of this new run, everything that he's done has been in service to Kal El um, and mm-hmm. and protecting Kal El, finding Kal El, you know, all these things. Um, and so you sort of take in a little bit of that identity that's separate identity of his away um i don't know if i've it's been given the opera he's i don't know if there's been enough opportunity in the first three issues to sort of hit that sort of stride that we had with son of kal where there was that connection that we all felt for him and in the way that he was asserting himself and doing there were some things here and there but i do miss that healthy serving of this is who John is, um, and this is why he is who he is, and this is how he's going to show it to the world. Um, so I'm, I'm waiting for that 
that's where to be introduced back into the fold. But right now it's not a hundred percent there because he's, he's sort of been on mission. He's yeah. sort of been team player boy. I haven't Is... started any of the Dawn of DC stuff. Like I'm still I did a little bit. Yeah. And like, it's like one or two issues in for most of them, but that's, that's another big gap for me too, that I want to start as well. Is Taylor still writing for... the Superman book? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's that's good to know because I, with with all the things that you said, it it didn't help my hesitation. If anything, it added to it, which yeah, is not not on time. you. What's up? I think he just needs time to 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 hit that the thing that he wants to do now. I think it was easier for him to write the story of a Superman when there was no other Superman. Mm. But now, as we've seen, there S is flying all over the place now. Yeah, you know. So it now, what do you do? So much of his story was he had to be the one. You know, he had to be the world Superman. Well, now he's like what one of eight, (laughs) you know, super people, and it sort of has taken that agency away from the character a little bit. So I think he's trying to he's trying to maneuver himself into another himself tom taylor that is into another space with his character why is his character different than connor why is this character more special than connor etc cetera, etc cetera. i gotcha okay does Ta- connor taylor- still have the leather jacket by the way <laughs> yeah he does okay just check <laughs> woof that's a dawn of the dc up. book right superboy's got a new book mm-hmm. yep I think John talked about it. Yeah. A couple weeks ago. But, but of course, aren't, aren't all these Dawn of DC books going to be interrupted by night terrors? Dun, dun, dun. I think that's part of it, though. Oh, okay. I read the night terrors, the, the free comic book day stuff. So that was kind of interesting. And good. what do you think? Where's um, it going? I think it's going to be interesting. I don't like the. Okay, this is going to sound shocking. I saw what they were doing with Damien and that whole Lazarus thing. Um, and I don't necessarily, necessarily know if I like that. They sort of started off with this story where someone can invade your dreams, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like we've seen that a bunch of times. Um, so I don't know where this is going. I just want to see Detective Chimp. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's not invalid. Just want Detective Chimp. But didn't the Justice League just die and they were living in their dreams for three months or four months or whatever that was? We just came off that. No, they were living, they were living in worlds that were made up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dark Crisis ruled, man. (laughs) (laughs) I had fun with Dark Crisis, but I had zero investment. (laughs) Perfect. Sounds good. All right. Anything else for Aaron? Or are we moving on to Bob? Hit it, Bob. Okie dokie. Look, not a lot of comics this week because, well, May has five Wednesdays, don't you know? So I'm going to be all over the place this week. So leading off, for most of the geek community, May the 4th is Star Wars Day. And that's all great, but I choose to celebrate it as Audrey Hepburn's birthday. Uh, fight me, all right? You know? <laughs> Um, okay. Among the titles in my personal film fest this year was the criminally overlooked 1961 production of The Children's Hour, which is based on the 1934 play by Lillian Hellman, and it's here from her actual screenplay. 
This version sticks to the original story, which couldn't be used back when it was filmed in, in, in the 30s. And the quick thumbnail, Karen, played by Ms. Hepburn, and Martha, Shirley MacLaine, are running a school for girls, but when one unruly student feels they're being singled out for discipline, they're not, by the way, she spreads rumors that the two teachers are lovers. And when those rumors take wing across the town, their world is turned upside down. Now, by 1961 standards, and a certain level by even 2023 standards, this was a bold move. Uh, but you wouldn't have expected less from multiple Academy Award winner director uh, William Wyler. Still a powerful work after 60 years. Although younger viewers might need to be reminded of the American zeitgeist pre-Stonewall. And uh, get a chance, this movie it doesn't show up much, but Turner Classics every now and again gives it a run, and you should definitely take a chance on that one. I read a novel this week, Una Out of Order, a very thought-provoking piece by Margarita Montemore. Story opens this way. Una Lockhart is celebrating New Year's Eve 1982, just hours away from turning 19, with the year ahead filled with possibilities as she can either go to London to study or stay home in Brooklyn and tour with the band she and her boyfriend, Dale, have just started up. As the countdown begins, she faints, only to awaken 32 years in the future and inhabiting the body of her 51-year-old self. This isn't all, however, and I'm spoiling just a, a bit here, as Una will leap out of her body with every turning of the new year and randomly backwards or forwards in time. Now, we've all seen some aspects of this in movies and books, comics. There's a special poignancy in what Una's struggles are here as she tries to make things, at least if not right, at least make them livable. But since, as she's portrayed here, she's not a paragon of virtue, as her fixes sometimes have very, very unintended consequences. Uh, I read this because Una Out of Order is the latest selection in our guest co-host Nikki's book club. So if you happen to be in the Huntington, New York area Thursday evening, May 11th, stop by Three's Brewing for some engaging commentary and great beer too. And you don't even have to read the book to have a wonderful time. Now, in themes very much related to Una's story is, well, it's Love Everlasting number seven, Tom King, Elsa Chartier, Matt Hollingsworth, and Clayton Kells. And I'm not gonna say too much cause spoilers, as this issue was something really a little different in that, well, there are answers to the time slips, maybe, that, that Joan is going through, maybe not. And just because, as with Una Lockhart's story, some people have been, I, I, I've talked to about Love Everlasting, have been frustrated by this. But you know, if you take it one step at a time, issue by issue, you know, you enjoy the journey a little bit more. I, I want answers, don't get me wrong, but I'm enjoying <laughs> the process as we go. Finally, Scarlet Witch number five, Steve Orlando with art this time around by Russell Dowderman, who's been on cover duty, as well as Wanda's costume redesign. Colors by Matthew Wilson, letters by Corey Pettit, by the way. And while it seemed like the battle to save Darcy Lewis from a gruesome fate has ended, Scythia, the leader of an other dimensional group called the Bakai, 
where she's back for her pound of flesh from Darcy's transgressions. Now, obviously, this is gorgeous to look at. And Steve Orlando's writing, though, takes center stage. And there's a villain takedown that left me absolutely speechless. Nice. Some of the best Wanda stuff I've read in a very long time. And just love, love what he's doing with Scarlet Witch. And I is done. Nice. Yeah, I, I agree. Go ahead, Joy. No, go ahead. I was gonna say I agree with Scarlet Witch. Um, yes, she's still the pretender, but I uh, <laughs> I do enjoy what Steve is doing there. I literally only had one minor quibble about it, and it was really more so like the last page. I just felt like they could have not had. <laughs> the happy-go-lucky, you know, cheering while the city is still being rebuilt and people are still traumatized and going through PTSD. Off to well, go she's get fixing an egg sandwich, things, cetera, but that's not the that's not the last page. The last page I thought you were going to complain about. Well, no, the last page is going to be. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to. Okay, into the <laughs> right. hanger, but you know, about the last part, the last scene of that story. Um, so yeah, the thing is, yeah, uh, I, Wanda, Wanda as a okay, Wanda's going to fix things, as opposed to uh, Man of Steel, where Superman and Lois are kissing in the smoldering crater of a metropolis, where nothing's going to get fixed for like ten years. No, my issue wasn't Wanda. My issue was Darcy. But that's Darcy, right? But it's like it's like all of these people's this people's entire city was destroyed like, yeah rebuild twice, the diner actually. i want to have bre- i want to have breakfast i want breakfast like not just once but <laughs> twice because she had to rebuild it a second time magically people yeah. still had their ptsd etc cetera, etc cetera, all because they of will her. remember they will remember though come on and she's give, just give like her, give wanda hey let's go get Darcy something to eat yes <laughs> the diner like, comes first food. forget the forget the hospitals build me a diner <laughs> it was just like uh too soon darcy too soon but no, I agree, and I also feel like I wish um, Dowderman had been on every episode. Every, I, I, I would take Dowderman on every book because I really do love yeah. art. Yeah. His art, when it comes to things mystical um, and magical, I think he just really does something. Those fight scenes were amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Seeing Wanda put up her dukes was amazing. Yeah. I have these two. So, yeah, that was kind of that was kind of fun. Go ahead, Joe. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, um, I got to catch up on Scarlet Witch for sure. Um, Love Everlasting. I agree with you. I, I, I There's like a, a switch that has to go off in my head reading Love Everlasting because it's like he they're obviously riffing on these like serialized romance stories. And I was down for that game for like four issues. <laughs> but then around issue five six, I was like, "All right, what's what's the end game here? Like, what are we getting towards?" And I, I do agree that here we are around seven eight, like things are starting to take a turn. And for me, every time a Love Everlasting issue comes out, I'm like, "They're doing another one," um, because I'm just it's, I'm just wondering yeah. like, when is this going to end? Like, what like because you could just keep going with it with with Joan's story mm-hmm. this issue i will say finally felt like oh, okay we're doing something different here 
and the the breakdowns that happen in this issue oh, first those, of all chartier's Sh- artwork the spreads the, the panel design the repeated word the <laughs> captions like it is the, like you forget that for all our griping about tom king like tom king and elsa chartier are in some for some people a dream team you know like and there is a, a this book is experimenting with the form in a very meaningful way it's only now though there there was a stretch where i was like i i'm losing you're losing me you're losing me not show because... me the maid story show me the cowboy story yeah, yeah, let's like, go somewhere and, and they weren't losing me because it wasn't good that's not why they were losing me because it was good and it looked great. And, and I, I found it to be very interesting. They were losing me because I didn't see what the point was. And now here we are issue seven, eight, that I, I finally do have a sense of what we're doing here. There's gotta be an end. Is it, it's gotta be 12 issues or 10 issues, right? Like we can't do this for 20 issues. Well, they did one trade of the first five. So it'll either be another five. So you think 10 or 15? I'm thinking 10. Yeah. But uh, who knows? It's image and it was a Substack thing first, I believe. Yeah. It's it's great. I really like it a lot. Um but only but I I'm I'm glad that we're starting to see some some cracks in uh in poor Joan. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yes. Oh my god. There's that scene where she's like sitting in the kitchen. Oh, I, yeah. It, it's beautiful. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful spread that I like. You have to look at it to really see what it is, and it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. very, very happy with this book. Just as you're saying, there is a sort of fatigue set in. It's like, oh, I, I thought I knew where it was going, and then I didn't, and then I did again. And the last two issues have. Without spoiling, the conversation she has with her dad. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of very, um, there's a lot of subtext going on here. You really gotta, you really gotta dig in here to see what you're doing, dealing with. I like it. I like it a lot. Cool. Anyway, again. Anyway, (laughs) that's jazz. We're done. You guys want to talk about Guardians? Hell yeah, let's talk about Guardians. <laughs> this movie rules. All right, here we go. If you've not been here before, welcome. We will tell you what we're going to do. We will go around the table. We will do non-spoilery thoughts first, and then we will call a clear spoiler warning. Anything after that is fair game. Sometimes we even skip right to the end of the movie, right off the bat, so... <gasps> Be forewarned, we will give you a countdown so that you have time to escape before the spoilers start. Uh, and that is how we do it here on the Talking Comics podcast. I will begin. Nice. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is probably my favorite Marvel movie since Endgame. I will put this out there. I have to be careful with how I word this. I think there have been a lot of... All right. I think there have been several very good Marvel movies in Phase 4 and coming into into Phase 5, and and the shows included. Um, So Marvel content, I'll say. 
I think there has been any anywhere from very good to great stuff that they've put out. But Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is the first time that I've watched something from Marvel where I felt some of the epicness seep back into what I was watching on screen. This was a movie-ass movie theater (laughs) movie for me. I had a blast with this. And I will also give you a little bit of context. Um, I am in the, and this is getting a little personal, but I am in the midst of doing a medication adjustment. I've been having a lot of medical problems the last two weeks. Uh, It's partially why I didn't get to read too much stuff because I've been too uncomfortable, but when I went to go and see Guardians, something was up with me. Uh, this was the same day that Bronwyn's plane got struck by lightning. So I was, there was something in the air, right? Something was going on with me. I was in a strange, vulnerable state watching this movie. And there were multiple times where not even in the big emotional beats, I got like weepy during those two But this was a kind of movie where I felt like there was so much going on beneath the surface with these characters, characters that I really haven't been too enthusiastic about for a while. Um, I didn't really care for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. It's not one of my favorite Marvel movies. I don't think it's bad. I just don't. It's at the bottom of my list of things to rewatch. I flat out did not like the Christmas special almost at all. Uh, and then this came out and hearing the word of mouth, hearing people come back saying how amazing it is and how re-energized people are for the MCU after seeing this, I got really excited and I went to go and see this movie and it delivered for me. And within the first three minutes, all it took was a simple gesture from one character to another that got me choked up. But I, I went to go and see this movie with my friend Brad and I didn't want him to see me cry. So I'm like Aww. sitting there with my my hand kind of, you know, <laughs> over my eye, like a little <laughs> whatever. And, uh, you know, face buried in my popcorn and whatnot. But there's a, there's a, there's a moment, and this is the very, very beginning, like within the first three minutes of the movie, uh, Star Lord's not having a good time and Nebula goes to check on him and he's trying to like sleep off his emotions and he reaches up to her in his sleep and grabs a hold of her arm thinking that she's Gamora and just in that little gesture of Star Lord raising his hand and putting it on on um, Nebula's arm and seeing Nebula's reaction and remembering where she came from and the the growth of character she's still very much nebula she's still definitely later in the movie um but she's become one of my favorite characters in probably all of the mcu especially in the guardian stuff Uh, i think karen gillen does a wonderful job and the way that she's become a part of this team and a part of this family has really spoken to me throughout the years as the guardians have gone on but anyway Getting back to general thoughts, uh, I thought it was gorgeous. It looked like Marvel 
Not to say that other things don't look good in Marvel. There have been some absolutely spectacular set pieces and big effects moments and stuff like that. Wakanda Forever had some really great stuff. There was some cool world stuff in uh, Quantum Mania, even though I think that movie is kind of garbage. But this looked like they really took their time. They had digital characters. They had insanely detailed worlds practical effects a whole mixed bag of really well executed stuff i thought it was genuinely funny i didn't feel like any of the jokes were forced there's like maybe a little bit of banter there's some drac stuff that i don't really connect with um but overall like i genuinely laughed a bunch of times i definitely laughed at the f-bomb admittedly i wasn't expecting it and it was very casual and very funny and i have a theory as to why that was the f-bomb and not something more significant but um i didn't realize how connected i felt to these characters especially after not really following them too much for the last couple of years how emotionally invested I would be in what's supposed to be kind of their final mission together. And I didn't know what the plot of this movie was supposed to be. I knew that it had to do with Rocket, but that was all I knew. I loved how personal it was for them. How from the moment that one of their own is threatened, nothing else mattered. Like that was the mission. That's what they're doing. Do or die. We need to rescue our friend. Our friend's in trouble. This is what we do. The the galaxy will go on pause because this is what we need to do. And as Rocket's story unfolds, I was really, really, really pulled into the depiction of his past and how he became the way that he is. Um, And was also really impressed by how much James Gunn was able to get away with in this movie in terms of the level of violence shown um, against both animals and people. I think the high evolutionary is probably one of the best Marvel villains we've ever gotten. Uh, Just absolutely mad with power and obsession and the, uh, uh, how do you pronounce it? Is it uh, Chuck Chuck Woody Iwoji, just acting his pants off, and and the 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 gruesomeness that's revealed about him later, after something that had happened uh, between him and Rocket back in the day, and like, I was there were a couple of kids in my audience, and I sat there in my head, I was like, good luck, parents, <laughs> like good luck explaining away these you know, uh, tens of thousands of lives lost in these absolutely epic set pieces of things being destroyed and whole civilizations going up in flames. And the movie just didn't stop the whole time for, for me. And I, I had a blast with it from beginning to end. I The most engaged that I've been with a Marvel movie since Sarah and Jess came out and we all went to that end game screening together and had just an audience that was positively alive. Uh, when this movie ended, people got up and clapped and you could feel it in the room that we had just watched something that was refreshing for the MCU. Again, 
I like several of the other movies a lot. I just think that this one was maybe one step above others that I've seen in the past for a little while, certainly within the last phase. Um, just not counting the television stuff. So that's my two cents. Um, Joey, why don't you go next? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, including how grotesque this film was. It is, it's gross. This movie's gross. There's a lot in it that I was just like, damn, he was really like, I did trauma one time and uh, here I am doing this movie now too. Like there are segments of this. There's a whole, there's a whole set piece in this film that is the grossest thing I, I I have ever seen in a Marvel movie. Like like the 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 middle section, and we'll talk about it in spoilers. The middle setting, this planet that they go to, oh so good, is disgusting. Oh, it's so gloopy, disgusting. I love it. I, it's so gross. But then I'm like, oh yeah, James Gunn did Tromeo and Juliet 50, 25 years ago. But anyway, um. I loved it. I really, really genuinely did. And and like you said, Steve, like I wasn't weeping the whole time, but I would say the last 25 minutes of this movie, uh, I was really emotional and like crying through a lot of the things that are, that happen um, at the end of this movie that will obviously save for spoilers. Some of which I just found so profoundly, appropriate to what gun has been doing with guardians really since guardians one i watched guardians one and two again over the last two weeks to kind of gear up for the film um i didn't watch the christmas special again but i do remember really enjoying the christmas special but i'm also a huge Mm -hmm. kevin bacon fan so that's you know part of the course oh never mind Um, save it but um and the answer to your question is yes uh, I know what you're going to ask. And yes. Okay. Um, the, so it's interesting because I remember really enjoying the first guardians and really having a lot of fun with it. And if you remember guardians was the movie that everyone was like, what the hell is this? And part of what made it so well received was how different it was and how kind of quirky and weird and, bizarre it was guardians 2 like you steve I, I i wasn't necessarily partial to however in recent years no it grew on you it has grown on me a lot uh it yeah. hasn't necessarily moved up my rankings but it's grown on me a lot knowing where those characters go in Endgame and infinity war uh and and after that so like now in retrospect that movie takes on a lot of emotional weight and i will say this too Guardians 1 and Guardians 2, for me, as someone who hasn't really jumped on the Chris Pratt action hero train, you know, um, I know he's like the center of every poster, but what Gunn has really been able to do with these Guardians films is build out a, a real team dare I say a real family around this Chris Pratt character that I really do love. Like I, like we've been talking about Batista all episode. (laughs) This is the Batista hour. Um, Like I really, really love Batista's Drax. I really do. In guardians one, he's got some lines that are like, 
that like humor from 2013 that was like haha we're misogynistic and it's funny and like that does not land and it has never landed for me but that has kind of gone away and i i just for me volume three like batista drax drax and mantis and nebula are the three in this movie that carry this movie for me and I cried at their resolutions in this film. I really, really, really enjoyed their arcs, their character interactions. Um, Because for me, what Guardians Volume 3 really affirmed is that of all of the Marvel films, really with the exception of Eternals, which I also adore. um, Yeah, I like that one too. Guardians for me is the most about family. And the most about how quirky and fun, and I don't want to use the dysfunctional because I don't think that's an appropriate descriptor for this, how quirky and fun and supportive and weird and, you know, and intimate family can be, right? And I think Gunn, for all of his eccentricities, all of his work has really been about, his like body of work, if you want to think about that, all of his work has really been about like found family, finding yourself, finding people that, that will believe in you no matter what. And I think if you watch one, two, and three, like three sticks the landing so much, you know? And Steve, I think like, I liked a lot of phase four and I've been very vocal about this. Like I, I, I really enjoy phase four. I see what phase four was about. I understand it. I get it. It it means a lot to me. And I love a lot of those films. Yeah. Guardians has the benefit of building to this moment. And I, I also applauded at the end of this film and my audience did too, because I think more so really than any of the other trilogy enders um, except maybe uh what's the spider-man one no way home no way home yeah no way home uh which had a whole other thing that we talked about when we did that review guardians james gunn has been able to do all three guardians films has been able to 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 have a hand in the writing of all three guardians films and has really been shepherding this character these characters through their entire tenure in the mcu and he has never strayed from what these movies have been about which is this idea of found family, finding yourself, finding the people that will make you better. And you could tell that this movie was as much about him saying that about these characters as it was about him saying that about the growth that he's had over the course of the last 10 years of his career. And he's in a, he's in a very impressive place. Now, if you think about his kind of indie B movies start back in the slither, you know, um, and that also made it a ton of fun when I saw like Nathan Fillion in this movie and like the actors from the first couple of Guardians movies in this movie. Like he brings his friends along, you know, and and like this movie really like it felt like a pet project. It felt pet project. <laughs> that's a <laughs> that's a pun. Um, uh, uh, it felt like something that, you know, he felt passionately about and it manifests in a really quality film. Like you said, the effects, the music, the 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 choreography, the the fight choreography, yo, it's all really fantastic and really top tier um, stuff. Like this is a well-oiled machine performing at its peak here. I will say this: two things. One, 
because there's a lot of spoilers and I, I have a ton to say about that. But one is, like you said, Steve, I think this movie is kind of, it's kind of intense and kind of gross. So there are also like some really young kids in the audience. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't think this is for you guys. Like, sorry, but no, um, it's a dark film. It's a heavy, dark, violent, grotesque. I love that we got that though. Oh no, of course. Like for me, I was like, this is weird and crazy, but I, I were nine. Yes. I (laughs) will say like, if you're not, if you're expecting like guardians one, which also had some twisted stuff in it, but was not this, you know, um, I will say that just, you know, watch out for that. Like there's some real intense, like triggering stuff in this movie. Like that, that, that's, that's really heavy. And the second thing is I do think it's a little long. I think two 30, there were a couple of times in the movie where I, I did feel it. Like there was a, there was like one too many flashbacks for me that I, I kind of zoned out of a little bit. Maybe it's just cause I kind of already knew that storyline or it just felt a little redundant, but like, there were moments of the film that did feel a little draggy for me. But again, you know, if James Gunn is like, I'm only doing one more of these and it's one more with this group, we're going balls to the wall. You know what? Power mm-hmm. to them. But 2.30, 2.30, I was feeling it at times. I I agree with you in that it felt long, but it, it, never, it never dragged for me. Like mm-hmm. I was, found myself continuously impressed by where we were going next. And I'll be honest with you, I'll just say two words, corridor fight. That long shot sequence of all of them rushing into that hallway, that moment in that movie, that like two and a half minutes that it took for that whole thing to happen, I just sat there with my mouth on the floor being like, this is the coolest thing James Gunn has ever shot. This is fantastic. For sure. The choreography in that fight is incredible. I think, and and just one last point, I I don't want to shit on Chris Pratt, but you know, the, the film, like I said, I, I really resonated with the cast surrounding him, but I think the, the quote unquote resolution at the end of this film for that character, I think really landed for me. And I found very moving. Um, And I think that this movie this movie does really well by most of its cast. One character in particular that we could talk about, but I think for most of its cast, this is a really, really great kind of resolution, send off, whatever it is. Agreed. Uh, Who would like to go next? Aaron? Yes? No? Me? You can go, bud. All right. Um, so much of what I want to say has been said. So to make this not a five-hour show, we keep going this. Uh, as I think everybody, Guardians 2, I enjoyed but didn't love. It just seemed perfunctory, I guess would be the very old-fashioned word. And This, I thought, was not nearly as self-conscious about trying to hit the same beats, even if it did. But the depth of those emotional beats here, everything was seemed earned to me. And I love that every character has their moment, has their arc. There's one, without getting spoilery, there's one I think everyone wanted to see that we didn't get because it wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense. And letting that play out in its own way gave us that. Uh, it is It is triggery with all the sort of, 
animal violence, so to speak, but uh, I really love to hate the high evolutionary here. The performance is incredible. I am very reminded of, it's the H.G. Wells book, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and particularly the Charles Lawton version that they made as the Island of Lost Souls in the 30s, which was Wells's anti-vivisection mm. uh, statement. And I think that's at some level, as James Gunn is reasonably my age, that he was probably seeing that movie on television and, and got to that where, oh, you know, we can, we can reference some of this. Just love that all these characters, and yeah, I, is it a little long? Yeah, maybe the second go around of coming back to the ship you know, could we have made that one? But you know what? I got I, I just enjoyed it beginning to end. Never looked at my watch, never cared. People in the theater were cheering, laughing, crying, the whole range of emotion. Absolutely loved this movie. Absolutely loved it. All right, nice. Uh Aaron, how about you? Sure. So I will start by saying that my expectations for this film were incredibly low. Um, and I say that because, and I think I've said on this show previously that maybe the window for guardians to come back had passed. Um, I think other films had picked apart um, some of the things that, you know, we found engaging about guardians one um, some of that, I think things like Thor Ragnarok and, and other movies sort of, uh, went into that space and maybe, you know, maybe gave us more than we needed. And so I wonder if maybe the thing that was the gem about the first movies, you know, had run its course and maybe this wasn't going to be it um, in terms of a, 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 a different path for these characters. I didn't know what that path could be. So I went in um, and you know, I will say there are a couple of like in the early scenes, I was sort of just like, all right, some of these characters, I think in early on, my first thought was uh, Mantis seems to be really overacting these scenes um, initially in the in the first 10 minutes, I think maybe the opening scenes and then the same for Drax. Um, but then something happens and sort of it shifts the tone of the movie um, and and things change for me, and so I found myself at a certain point saying, "What am I? What am I watching here? What is? What am I? I'm I'm unsettled. I'm not sure what I'm watching here because <laughs> I I find myself really really enjoying this in a way that I hadn't anticipated um, because it is not it is not as predictable as I had assumed it was going to be. Um, I remember saying to someone over the the weekend that. You know, there were points where I was all ready to give an epic eye roll at something that Star-Lord was about to do. Only if I, oh, wait, no. Oh, my bad. I They oh. really did go in a different, they really did zig when I thought they were going to zag. Um, you know, I was prepared to give an epic eye roll when I thought there was going to be an interaction between a couple of characters I thought was going to be predictable. I'm like, oh, nope, they did it again. They They sort of caught me off guard. You know, just a couple of those spaces where I was sort of just like, ah. All right, maybe that's why I am enjoying this. It's almost like maybe someone took notes at all the feedback we got from two um, and, yeah. you know, the feedback that we got from the direction that some of the other movies that try to to reinvent that same tone um, and they put it in here. So they gave us they gave us this through line that I thought took a character 
in a completely unexpected direction from an emotional perspective. I really, really, I think I may have at times enjoyed those flashbacks more than some of the mainline story because I believe they added, they were a palate cleanser for some of those other mainline story scenes. Um, and they gave you a depth of understanding of a particular character that paid off later, you know, in the movie when there's a, a goal that's that's accomplished. And I don't know if I would have felt the same way, you know, had I not seen that history and that buildup, you know, through those flashbacks and understand the meaning and the weight behind their, their actions and, you know, and, and all of those things in my face. It's, you know, as opposed to knowing the history and understanding the character from a source material perspective versus seeing it in relation to how this story is being told and how the, the creators wanted to tell this story and having them all in one space, it it hit me differently. So I, I felt like the movie had different layers that maybe the first, I would say even the first two movies didn't have. Um, maybe not so much the first movie, but the second movie. Um, I felt like it was able to juggle a lot of things all at once, but still make them each matter. Um, and at the same time, I feel like it was just fun to watch. You know, it was just enjoyable. It, it you know, we can just, we can dissect the movie from now till you know next Tuesday and and fine. But in the end, the question is, did you enjoy being there, watching this movie? And for me, the answer was yes. And I tell you, for half the movie, I fought the feeling. You know, <laughs> I've I've I've, I've I fought the feeling because I was just like. Nah, this is they're, they're going to get me. They're going to do something that's going to piss me off at some point. I'm just going to, you know. So I'm I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to open up my heart to this. Yeah, I'm not gonna, but I'm not the have movie, my heart broken. but it does. Like it gets you to open up, and and I think it's just in this. I think it's in its sincerity. I think it's in the the personal, like you, for all of our kind of like oh the guardians like again like mm-hmm. all through those mm-hmm. those first few movies. You forget that, like, yeah, we have seen these characters. We have seen them go through these things. And predictable, though, those first two movies might have been, like, here they are. And there is this this tenor throughout the entire film. Like, I went into this movie being like, this is it. Like, someone's either going to bite it or, like, at the end of the day, like, this is the last time we're seeing these. And I didn't even get that sense when I saw the third Spider-Man movie, you know, like you watch that movie and you're like, Sony's never going to let this cash cow go, you know, like they're, they're going to make those goddamn Spider-Man movies until Tom Holland is like, you know, he's, he's got like bionic joints, you know, like until he, (laughs) until he signs off, they're going to make those. So like, so like, there's never really that sense of like finality walking into this movie. And even the Christmas special had this vibe too, where it was like, this is winding down. And I think that that kind of, to your point, Aaron, like that did make everything feel kind of novel. And I didn't Mm -hmm. know where we were going to go. All I knew was that this was going to end. And I think that that really changes how you watch this movie. No, I I 100% agree. There was a, a a low grade tension I carried through the entire movie, which wondering which characters 
character or characters were going to buy it and how gruesome that death was going to be. Um, uh, and that played out the way it played. I'm not going to ruin or spoil anything. That played out the way it played out. I will say also, I wondered if, as I was watching um, and seeing, almost as if I was seeing layers form around Star-Lord, um, I wonder if the the creative team, I hate to say it this way, I wonder if the creative team was sort of making the character ant- Chris Pratt proof um, in the sense that you know that there just seems to be this this vibe of, you know, anti Chris Pratt and people, you know, then that sort of seeping over into yeah. uh, to how they feel about Star-Lord, et cetera, et cetera. And then Star-Lord being sort of like a, a douche at times. We get it. Um, and, and you're not wrong. Uh, yeah. well, but at I the think- same time, I think there are little things that they did throughout the movie that I think were meant to combat that. Number one, making it admittance about um, or the role they played in. <laughs> You know, in the universe, <laughs> yes. nearly yeah, yeah, yeah. destroying half the universe. I got mad and meeting yeah. that on camera. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and also sort of in those spaces where I thought that they were going to do those things that were going to give me the epic eye roll, where they were going to make a similar type of mistake. You know, realizing that they were more capable, uh, you know, than I anticipated. That they were playing ahead. That they they are actually as clever at times as they you know, want to want to say they are and sort of Mm -hmm. seeing how that played out and then sort of continuing to show this undercurrent of of vulnerability and sort of tamping down the bro douchebag thing a little bit sort of combated that. I want to make something very clear. I'm watching Parks and Rec right now with Emily for the first time. I'm watching it for the first time. She's watching before. Chris Pratt is great. The problem with Chris Pratt is that he's been kind of shoehorned into these like stereotypical Mm -hmm. generic action roles and i forget that like guardians is kind of part of why that ended up happening to him but guardians also lets him hold on to a little bit of that humor and kind of oafishness that like what was that movie he did for amazon with the thing in his arm tomorrow people tomorrow like something Mm, anyway war tomorrow whatever or like the Jurassic Park movies where it's just like the most generic, you know, like, yeah. you know, action hero. Right. Like, Here, he's a do- he's a doofus. He is yes, and, not and, as great as he thinks he is. Yeah. And and this for movie was the first one that kind of like, not the first one. It, it really capitalized on that in a very meaningful, balanced way and didn't put that kind of douchiness mm-hmm. front and center, yeah. which was really good and allowed him to really stretch a little bit i there are a couple of scenes in here where i really like i said like there's some moments for star lord even that i, I think was, i was vibing with i think this movie allowed these characters to grow a lot throughout the course mm-hmm. of the two and yes. a half hours yes like you can look at the the mcu as a whole and watch their their journey throughout its entirety and certainly there has been you know there has to be growth of character throughout the, the past decade or whatever it's been that they've been around. But this movie in particular, they really make some turns by the end where Star-Lord, Star-Lord is still kind of Star-Lord at the beginning of this, like without getting into to too many spoilers, but like he is not able to reconcile his loss and he is continuously putting th- that loss onto another character, basically 
saying like, you know, you're not living up to my memory mm-hmm. and my, my expectation. But at a point in the movie, he gets told and he gets put in his place and it's laid out for him. And you can see, you could see it in his body language, in his face, like it cut real deep. And through the events of the movie and the threat of losing, you know, one of the team members, he really has to kind of mature and take the reins and and be the Star Lord that he needs to be to get the job done and to save his friend and the team mm-hmm. overall. But there are still moments, and I think that this lends to when they... I can't say too much because the end of the movie. Um but they're not perfect heroes. They're not perfect characters. One of the one of the attractive things about the Guardians is that they're flawed. And even some of the most innocent sounding characters on this team do things that are really messed up. There's a moment, I'll I'll name them, I'll call them out. There's a mantis moment in this movie uh toward toward the conclusion definitely in the at the top of the third act where she 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 violates like she she absolutely violates someone on the team and i was really hurt by that but in her final moments in this movie and seeing kind of how it all ends for her she knows Mm -hmm. she knows that it was wrong. She knows that she screwed up. Even she doesn't even have to say it. She knows it. And it's there for the audience to kind of pick up on, on their own because they don't mention it. They totally just gloss right over it. Um, and I'll, I'll talk more in depth about this when we get to spoilers, but um, yeah. Um, do we want to call spoilers so we can get into some of this stuff? I think so. Might yeah. As well. Yeah. All right. Let me just finish this thought then. Spoiler territory. Uh, we're going to be talking spoilers for this movie. There's no going back in three, two, one. Okay. So some of the biggest moments for me was the Drax Mantis Nebula moments when they're trying to decide what to do with the kids and they're arguing and Mantis and Nebula are arguing about Drax and his intelligence his behavior and mantis calls drax stupid on multiple occasions and makes him out to be this man child who doesn't talk appropriately doesn't know how to act doesn't know all these things and he is genuinely hurt by this he looks he's devastated you could hear it in his voice which is another you know kudos to to dave bautista and being able to act his pants off when he needs to and mantis reaches out to him and touches him and says, forget. And he just goes, zips right back into like, body tracks looking to, you know, be loud and inappropriate and all of those things. And I was genuinely devastated by her doing that to him. That felt like such a violation of him being in the same conversation with them and being on, on the level as his found family and friends that they care but, about him so much that she manipulated him in that moment to like, maybe she did it just to kind of rush the rescue along, well, but it's it to was to protect him. No, it's yeah, to protect but him. it was but, still but, so yeah, wrong. But, 
but, of course. Okay, so but let me jump in. He spent the entirety of the second movie calling her Shitting ugly, over her. stupid, oh, yeah. a whore. That, that's besi- but so like, wait, that, so um, that was him. That was his character. Though. Yeah. Oh, I'm well, sorry. Go ahead, Bob. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah. So so. Just fair, because I don't want to say fair game, but wait a minute. So, so she finally has enough of we got to get this done, and you're getting in the way of it, and she finally breaks. But that conversation which would be a human thing to do. That's that's my one of my favorite scenes in the film as well, for a mm-hmm. lot of reasons. The revelation that there's kids on the on the ship is just like yes, it, it's the Indiana Jones moment, Temple like, of Doom, right? Jaw dropping. But like that conversation is one of the favorite my favorite moments. And Steve, I'm with you. Like it, like. Mantis is so powerful. And that moment, the whole film, what I really loved about the Mantis character is like, she, she's the only one that's like, guys, like, stop. Like, listen, like, like she's lit. She says it in the film. She's like, I live my whole life on this planet serving this guy. And I did, I, I had nothing for myself. And now here I am with a family that I love with people that love each other and sometimes they just let their mouths get in the way and you're not Mm -hmm. listening to each other. So she spends this whole movie just trying to get these people to understand the value of what they have. And that moment that you're talking about telling him to forget, I think absolutely is, I I read it the same way you do like a a violation in the same way. Um, And I think the thing that's interesting about that moment is that, 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 conversation is not about drax that conversation is about nebula right and it does kind of it is hard to frame but like drax is just like the 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 object in that scene that nebula and mantis are kind of talking about and mantis's kind of comments is like yes he is stupid and oafish and a man child but i love it when she says but he makes us laugh and he loves us and he protects us and isn't that enough mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah. and and yeah. of course drax can't process that because he can't process that like literally but but in that moment he can't and i think that the forget is a way to protect him but also to that has that's supposed to land on nebula and not be drax's moment Drax's moment comes at the end of this film, and this is when I cried the hardest. Oh Absolutely. God! The when dad Mantis moment. says Absolutely. to him, "Like, you're you're not a destroyer. You're a dad. You're a dad." Yes. And I, I lost it. I, I just like I'm about to cry now. Like I lost it in that moment because the Drax the destroyer thing has been since Guardians One, and Drax the destroyer thing is all you know from the comics and what Starlin did, and you know with him versus Thanos and all that stuff. But all that stuff is in the past. Like you can't do that storyline. So how are you going to make this character's resolution matter? And the invocation of that, just that simple line at the end of that movie, I was like, that is that is literal like narrative perfection. Like how you get to that moment. It's 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 stunning. It's a really stunning move, and it is at the core of this film. And it's why, for me, it is the Draxes and the Mantises and the Nebulas Nebula. that make this movie and this franchise work. You know, like it was the Yondu in the second movie that is the best character in that film, and it's it is those weirdos that makes this movie work, and that they get such happy endings. I just, I'm so like, 
it is so satisfying. Like as someone who's watched these films, like where it lands, it is emotionally gratifying and cathartic to get to that moment. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I feel you, you know, that is such a complicated scene. Well, I think and I love it. I love that scene on the, on the, on the show. I love it. it. I love it so too good. because of, of how complex I think it is. And I think that it, I think that that moment, it, it doesn't strike me as a moment that Mantis is proud of. I feel like oh, yeah. when I was watching the movie, it stayed with her. And in when they are wrapping up and everybody is kind of announcing that they're going their separate ways. And she says that she needs to essentially do some soul searching. I think that part of what she's been doing to kind of move the team along and, and manipulate people as part of her power and I think that that weighs on her a of lot. Of course, yeah. So I think those types of conversations were handled a little bit differently here because so often in the case, in movies like in movies in general, where you have someone have that snapping moment at someone else, it's supposed to sort of you know put them posture them as I am finally saying the thing that is the truth of this scene in the movie. And you now, as a person I'm screaming at or I'm yelling at or I'm saying these things to, need to accept that this is the case. Um, but the thing that I noticed throughout is they were no one was ever really wrong in what they were saying, factually. You know, mm. so Nebula getting pissed off because of something that tracked I think was justified in that moment. It was it was right. I think. At the same time, Mantis getting pissed off at Nebula was right. I think Star-Lord feeling the way he does about, um, what's her face? Gamora. Gamora, thank you, was right. But what she was saying to him was also right. I think they were all right, but they had to feel all of those things from their own perspective to sort of rec- it was almost like it was a recognition that yeah these people should not work together they should not be together there because all these things they're saying that should irritate or upset or frustrate them all are very true yes drax does do idiotic things and he says some really horrible things peter does some stupid things because he's so caught up in his whole title of being star lord mantis at times is just so like infantile at the same time needy but at the same time you know loving and nebula is so mean (laughs) nebula is just mean (laughs) and she's giving you her best dark knight returns or arises a bane voice for some reason in this movie i don't know where that was coming from but you know it's exactly it was always putting it on this time around she's really putting it on this time i was like okay but yeah all the no one was wrong in what they were saying. You know, it wasn't like someone, anyone was saying anything that was like overtly just to be mean or to hurt someone. It was true in those moments, but it didn't make it easier to swallow for the other characters. The best part about Aaron, I think you're totally right. And I think what Gunn is saying is like, you know, they might look like they don't belong together, but they're together. And these are the, this mm-hmm. is them. This is who they are. And this is them mm-hmm. together. And the, my favorite moments and it's a callback to Guardians 1, is like at the end of this movie, they're just a bunch of jackasses standing in a circle listening to each other, right? And like, 
like gone you know for all of his kind of like i said before like all of the kind of weirdness and 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 out there-ness of this film and it is a beautiful film the cgi is amazing the practical sets the the organ factory was a little too much for me i will so say that. good dude yeah. oh, it was I grotesque it. i loved but, it but he never in this film strays away from the the complicated the complicated realities of being a person which is what you're talking about aaron like all of the people in this movie got their shit and they got their things that they're working out and they're working it out all over other people's also dealing with their shit and they're just like like this like everyone in this movie they say it in the first one like we're a bunch of losers we've all lost something we're all broken and that's still true in this movie. They're all still broken, but they're 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 leaning on each other. And by the end of this film, they're they are that's the corridor fight. Like the synergy of the corridor fight only gets to happen <sighs> after they all reconcile in a meaningful I way. I love that right? scene. Absolutely and so. The only stray piece for me in this film, and I understand the purpose she serves, and there are some really fantastic scenes with her and, and Star Lord is Gamora. And for me, like Zoe Saldana's Gamora in this film, I've always loved the character, but for me here, she just felt like, she just felt like, like out of place in a way. And I don't know if it was just the way she was delivering the lines or like the purpose she was serving. But isn't she, she's supposed to be on the outside though. Yes, I get that. But, and I understand the kind of like, like, hard place rock that they were put in by having her kind of magically resurrected at the end of the end game film. not magic like temporally resurrected at the end of the she's you know what it is film. she's like the the people the the kids outside the window where they're looking in on the family having their nice family christmas dinner and yes. they're out in the cold looking through the window but going, the i wish i had is, that the difference is she's not out in the cold saying i wish i had that she's like screaming at everyone all the time and I was just like, and I was like, I get it. Like you're a ravager now. And like, you got like your muscled hair and you're like, I'm going to nah, fuck you guys. You know, right. everyone um, else gets to have a growth arc within this movie itself. And yeah. she, she does briefly kind of maybe yeah. says, I, I know you, we were probably fun together is about yeah. the extent of it. And like I said, there are some moments like in the ending too, where she's like, look, I'm not who you think I am, but I, mm. I, I know the value I had for you. And I'm sorry, I can't be that person. I'm going to go do my own thing now. And, and that reconciliation is really great. But there were several times in this movie, I was like, I I get it. You don't like these people, but like everyone else is already yelling. Like <laughs> if we just have one <laughs> fewer person yelling all the time. Um, I also will say, and I, I know this isn't like probably the popular opinion, but I was I was kind of glad that Rocket was like on the table the whole movie. Cause I I personally can find him a little grating at times. So to, to kind of invert that and have him like on the table and be the thing that they're all trying to save and do like the flashback rockets where you're kind yeah. of seeing him as yeah. a young person. Oh. Cause like Bradley Cooper is Bradley Cooper, but like, I didn't need two and a half hours of him being like, ah, da, da, bra, bra, da, bra, bra, I think that was absolutely on purpose. And I think, <laughs> I, get, I think that scene where he speaks into the, the inner, into the, the, the intercom and nebula hears him and there's this pause where she's just like emotional that 
he is alive. Yeah. None of those types of scenes would have worked if you hadn't had him off the board. Yes. Terrified mm-hmm. that he was going to die um, and got to see all these other layers of him, uh, you know, in his in his as his history, as his past is being told. Yeah. Um, I think all that stuff just added and built up and built because as you're going through, you're just like, well, shit, I actually do kind of like Rocket. I now see what his motivations were. Yeah. I see that he loved these people and he loved these people and he loved this and he was trying so hard and he was traumatized. And I get it now. Um, so here seeing that it was so it was particularly Nebula seeing that emotional response from Nebula, which was literally just a silent moment of shock and a pause that just really hit my heart. Yeah. It, it really just hit my heart to say, okay, well, now you're you're doing the thing now, you mm-hmm. know, with, with Rocket. Sure, and he was it. just so blase and nonchalant about it. But you know, it 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 all seemed to sort of land. I think these are the things that you can only do when you know this is the last time these characters are going to. Exactly. And like Karen Gillan covered in makeup with black eye contacts can still deliver that beat. It's like, yeah, this is a great cast and it's a great film that again, because it's the end and Gunn is not doing it. And a lot of these actors are probably done with this. Like it's cathartic. Like every beat just felt cathartic. Also, you know, they had five years to make this movie, <laughs> you know, like well, there is a, he got fired and yeah, yeah, he was, he was able to refine the script a little bit. You know, guardians two came out two years after the first one. I want to say two or three years. They really, why was Adam Warlock there? What was the point of him? Oh my God. That was hilarious. They need to introduce some future. I was a little taken <laughs> aback by, I was actually going to bring him up. Um, I am wholly unfamiliar with his character. I don't know that I've ever read anything with Adam Warlock in it. But even not knowing anything, when he opened his mouth, I had no idea that that was going to be the tone <laughs> of his character. No, that's that's no it, Adam Warlock I've ever read before. Yes, that is a very specific film version of Adam Warlock. I had yeah. a feeling that that was the case. Like I said, entirely unfamiliar, but not not to say anything to the char- to the people that do know his character. But for me, I was expecting this like super regal, almost robotic follower type character. We didn't get that though. We got this like, you know, animal loving, kind of like man child bumpkin thing. He's Shazam. He's Shazam. I was like, I'm kind of into this. I like him. But they said that was because they took him out of his um, egg too soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I was into it. I was, I, I didn't expect, I totally expected them to go the opposite way with him. Yeah. And when he turned out to be the way that he is in this movie, I have to admit that I was a little relieved because I was like, oh, good, another weirdo. Dude, you yeah, know, just, what he they, was there for was just to run through and, and crash into and break people. He looked real cool doing it. Really cool. When he yeah. got stabbed in the opening fight sequence, I was like, did he really just kill this character? Because I would have I would have <laughs> stood up and applauded. I would have been like, that is a bold move to have this like yeah. this key part of your marketing and everything and Will Poulter and do the whole bit. And then you just like off him in the first five minutes. God. I would have been like, let's do it. But he comes back and obviously has a really kind of like interesting kind of um, role in the film. I, I think it's again, it's, it's there, even though this is the last of this this iteration i think there is a future you know and i think that 
that Adam Warlock character, I think, is is representative of where this franchise could go. Um, he could grow into it. He, he, in the books, he becomes the protector of Counter Earth. He's a he's a Jesus figure. Oh yeah, sent to I, Earth I, by the High Evolutionary to stop the evil again, from permeating like, across it. They did Thanos in the Infinity Gauntlet the way that they did. So you have like it puts characters like the Guardians and all of these like Drax and Adam Warlock and and um nebula in a very interesting place because like the foundational storyline that those characters are connected to in the comics they're no longer they can't do it anymore Mm -hmm. no so they're really able to do whatever they want with them you know um i gotta say i was surprised they didn't off chris pratt in that moment in the at the end of the film yeah. and it was it was looking like it was going to happen and his face blew up and i was like that's it yeah how do you recover from that exactly yeah those bed packs were pretty magical yeah but yeah no, remember but... before he's also um he's part a no but yeah. not anymore at the end of guardians 2 they say once ego's dead and once that he planet lives, goes right, away yeah. he loses all those powers but anyway, anyway, regardless. When every blood cell in this body has turned to crystal, I yeah, don't know you recovered from I, I, that. I will but, say know. that, you know, the suddenness of him jumping off of that thing was very moving. And I was like, is this about to happen? Mm-hmm. I sat up in my seat. I was like, oh my God, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. They're, they're going to do it. And of course they walked it back. And I was like, of course they're not going to do it. You know, it's not this kind of movie. You, you want a happy ending. And I think James Gunn wanted a happy ending for this film. He deserves it. You know, everyone deserves a second chance, whatever. And sort of let everybody die at least once. While yes. Yeah, the yeah. resolution of him going home and seeing his grandfather. Oh, love that. I also cried. And I, and I was, I was thinking about it through watching one and two again. I was like, you know, this guy, he did go back to earth for a hot beat in like in, in uh, end game, but like, you never see him go back. And that the, the final moments of him kind of just like walking down the street going, you know, to the house and 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 seeing uh what's his name greg henry or whatever his name is yeah i was like i i started crying then as well and more importantly even though it is the end game the end credit scene that's not where the the proper film ends it ends with the dog days are over with them dancing and everything and which is such a beautiful scene such a beautiful scene and I, i really was moved by that as well it's a great movie it's it really is it's it's a really wonderful piece i'll probably see it again Hell yeah. I really want to take Bronwyn to go and see it. Like I want to, I want to see it in the theater and I possibly, if I can find a screening, I want to see it in IMAX. Not in the uh, rocket chairs. I was in it. I was in one for, oh, for the other day. I just didn't bring it up. It up. <laughs> no, I so sat, I, also, I sat in D box for it. I was just thinking about this. I think to the point that you were making earlier about Gamora's arc and her evolution. Um, I think, Groot was central to that. Mm. I think was was supposed to be a, a litmus test indicator of where she was and how she was feeling. Because I think, and I saw this written somewhere else after the show, but I think after the the after I saw the movie, because I was you know going back and seeing what everyone was thinking, the point at which she can suddenly understand what he's saying. Yes, I guess is supposed to be aligned to how close you are to him now yes how he feels about you and how you feel about him and once that connection is made you can now understand which is why i guess as audience members we were then unable to understand 
what he was saying at the end, which is again a perfect little sort of connection and relationship. Yeah, basically yeah. like you know, like James gonna say, "Hi, I gotcha." Now yeah. you all you all love these characters now, and <laughs> yep. and, and look and at you understand you and, it. You understand him. You understand it now. You you understand him. Which I well, which is James Gunn, right? Like you understand it now. We took you three movies and watching watching him make all these movies and do it like again gun like several of the filmmakers that have worked on these mcu films and and to be honest does make me a little bit excited for what he might do with some of the dc characters it is although it is a completely different vibe over there james gunn is never far away from the material you know like he like his like him saying at the end of this movie, like, I love you guys. Thank you for playing with me and understanding me and, and finally getting it after all these years. Like, that's what this movie was about. And that's what that's what he makes his movies about, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's very clear here. I'm so going to go back and say, I think Mantis was just getting on my nerves at certain points. I like Mantis though, so it's yeah. okay. I, I like, don't get me wrong, I liked her overall. It was just, there were certain points, I think in the beginning... I was just like, boy, she's really chewing that scenery. With she was sort of like really leaning into the mm-hmm. awkwardness of the character. I'm just like playing off against Drac and Drax in those moments. I'm like, yeah, it's just a lot. Just just dial it back maybe one notch, and we'll be right in that sweet spot. Um, but it didn't. But because the movie sort of shifted direction so quickly, it was sort of like, oh well, that's done. Um, and then they're <laughs> on to the next thing. We even talk about Cosmo. Love bad dog Cosmo. <laughs> Cosmo's great. Anyway, go Howard, see it. A little go Howard the Duck sitting there. Oh my God, my friend this Brad bit. freaked out. He kept on. He kept on like nudging me. He's like, he's gonna show up. He's gonna show up. And I kept telling him like, I don't think so, man. I'm like, I don't get your hopes up. And then he was there and he he elbowed me and he's like, I told you so. <laughs> you think the MCU will ever bring in the Beyonder? No, it's too complicated. Uh, who died? I, don't know. I don't know how they would do it. It's but. he's the guy that, like, you know, like created Secret Wars. Well, who knows? Lawrence Fishburne, you know, he's doing the cartoon, doing the cartoon, uh, and they're in the Monica Rambo. Yeah, maybe they, they. I love that they're 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 non-binary. (laughs) Oh, I also read Monica. This is totally unrelated. I'm not going to go down this tangent. Never mind. (laughs) Next Uh, week. Next week. All right. Yeah, I think I think this is a this is a beefy one. It's our beefiest episode in a while. We had a lot to do. All right. Let's uh, let's wrap this sucker up and talk about the books that we're looking forward to this week. Uh, Joey, since you are getting back on the horse. Yeah, I got a lot to read that I just am catching up on. Um, I've mentioned some of them in my lightning round, but in terms of new stuff this week, Saga's coming out. Um, Superman Lost, number three, the Chris Priest book. I've really, really been enjoying that. Um, Black Cloak, number five. Uh, There's a new Cullen Bunn joint from Boom called Ghost Lore. Number one, a lot of great horror stuff in comics right now, which is cool. Um, and uh, Silk is coming back again from Emily Kim. Yeah. So I will read anytime there's a Silk book. I will check that out. 
And uh, Alyssa Wong has a book for DC called Spirit World, which is coming out of Leviathan or something. I don't give a shit what the fuck it's about. (laughs) Alyssa Wong is on it. I'm going to read it. (laughs) There was a hint of it in uh, DC, uh, Dawn of DC Primer. Yeah, which I also have not read. So, oh, free comic book day. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Aaron, but I don't have a comic book shop, so therefore I have not read any of the free comic book (laughs) day stuff. They were free on Comixology, boo-boo. Yeah, they are. Listen. (laughs) It's all the same, man. Listen, man. Boo-boo. Listen. All right, that's it. Uh, Bob, what are you picking up? Uh, Black Cloak and Saga, of course. We also have Captain Marvel 49, only one more of those to go. We have Stargirl number six, Stargirl and Lost Shore number six, which finishes up that many. Uh, Harley Quinn screws up the multiverse, number three. We also have a Gotham Academy special this week, Maps of Mystery, and the Great British Bump Off number two by John Allison. Nice. Aaron, how about you? I think X-Men Red number 11 and everything else is a toss-up. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, what do I got going on here? Uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 25, Captain Marvel 49, Daredevil 11, uh, The Ambassadors number four is hitting the stands, Black Cloak, British Bump Off, Monarch, uh, Phantom Road number three, and Saga number 64. Those are my books. And uh, I'm going to continue. I'll just tell you, I, I've been reading Midnighter. So nice. I'm about six issues in. Absolutely loving it. I'll talk more about it next week. Uh, had no idea how cool that character is, especially under the pen of Steve Orlando. Uh, having a ton of fun with that right now. And uh, yeah, so that's going to do it. Uh, does anybody have any closing statements or anything that they want to share before we get out of here? I do. And it is related to books we're looking forward to in that if you're pre-ordering stuff and you've got a couple more weeks to do that through the previews, coming July 26th from our friend Stephanie Cook, she's doing a My Little Pony book called Camp Big Hoof. Yes, so it's it's My Little Pony and Cryptids, Chris. So you may have to jump on this one. <laughs> so get, get, make sure you pre-order that one when you get to your store. That's great. I'm looking forward to that. Um, what else? What else? What else? Uh, well, we would like to thank Jeremy again for coming and hanging out with us. Definitely go and check out The Dog Night. It's hitting shelves real soon. And uh, it's real good. It's a great read. Uh, obviously there's going to be more of it i'm looking forward to that and uh we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast uh as always you can send us your comments or questions through our email podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com we are also on twitter at talking comics we are on instagram talking comics podcast on hive at talking comics and uh joey where can our listeners find you nowhere Already then. Uh, Nowhere spelled with a K. At Joey Burcino. I'm not on Twitter anymore. You could try to Instagram me, but I'm private. I'm trying to get off the social medias, bro. Good for you. That's you can awesome. email me, Joey at talkingcomicbooks.com. There you, you have it. Uh, Aaron, what's your thing? <laughs> In the head of a dead god. Uh, <laughs> AJ Amos 70 on IG. Uh, Bob, how about you? 
old-fashioned email, Bob Ryer at TalkingComicBooks.com. There is at John P. Burkle. I am at dead underscore anchorus. Chris is the myth of psyche, and Bronwyn is at shiny baby B online. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Be excellent to each other, and until next time on the Talking Comics Podcast, to be continued. Mm-hmm.